All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I cannot believe American Gods turned me into a filthy Laura Mad Sweeney shipper. I'm Mary, I'm an online marketer, and I'm eating pizza. Um, and uh, American Gods was good, but I really just wanted an adaptation of uh, Wictive. Yeah. Especially that opening. Yeah. That opening is for Wicked and Vine. Yeah, yeah. Can't can't tell me otherwise. <laughs> uh, so American Gods is a 2001 fantasy novel by Neil Gaiman following Shadow, a young man recently released a few days early from prison where he was serving time for a botched robbery. We never really get details on the crime. And frankly, I really like that. <laughs> That feels like so fucking long ago. It's been so long. I know. Uh, Shadow is released early due to the death of his wife, Laura, who it turns out was cheating on him with Shadow's best friend, Robbie. Uh, with his last tie to normal life severed, Shadow ends up employed by Mr. Wednesday, a weird old grifter who really doesn't try to hide the fact that he's trying to stir up a god, or sorry, a war between the old gods, which is gods like Chernobog. Uh, why can't I? I've said Chernobog. Chernobog. I don't know why the pronunciation of that word just flew out of my brain. Uh, a Nancy and so on, and the new gods of things like media, technology, and globalization. Um, Shadow and Wednesday go on a sort of recruitment road trip up and down the Midwest and southern regions of the U.S. with a few stops elsewhere, uh, recruiting gods and other mythical beings to their cause. Laura comes back from the dead, as you do, and starts aiding Shadow and his goals. Everything gets very weird. In the end, a lot of very big things happen in quick succession. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like nothing happens in this book, and yeah. then everything happens. I think that's why I enjoyed the ending much more than the rest yeah. of the book. It felt really satisfying, because mm-hmm. I had to slog through some- there's a lot there's a lot of setting up the dominoes and the, all of the dominoes topple very suddenly. Yeah, and and I and I I can appreciate that. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. Um so very quickly we find out that Wednesday is Odin and that he's planning this big battle with Loki to sacrifice all of the gods who die in this war to himself. Odin dies at the hands of the new gods, which provides the catalyst for the battle, which Odin attends as a ghost. Uh, Shadow holds vigil for Odin by being hanged from the world tree and finds out that he may actually be a god himself. The battle is largely thwarted by Laura, who dies for real while killing Loki, and eventually Shadow, and eventually Shadow, who talks the gods out of it. She, sorry, she doesn't kill Shadow. That was confusingly worried, worded, rather. Laura, thwart, large part, thwarts the battle. Shadow shows up and finishes the job by being like, hey, we don't have to do this. <laughs> Um, eventually what happens is Shadow leaves America and he meets Odin, the Norse one, in Iceland and is told that while both he and Wednesday are Odin, they are not each other. I love that part because it just made, it made everything about American gods like come together for me of like, I don't know how to explain it. It was just like America made, America made these gods. I know that sounds really simplistic, (laughs) but it worked really well for me. Yeah, yeah. It lets you know that like. America didn't supersede the existence of the other gods. Mm-hmm. The other gods are still there. That's why I think this idea we'll get into later of like the good old days of gods is so wild. Yeah, truly. Um, the show is different. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to do a play-by-play summary of it. Um, suffice it to say that the first season used the book as a roadmap to explore the themes of the book. Uh, it, it expanded on elements like Laura. It shook up some of the turn-of-the-century ideas about the internet. And it incorporated things that were left out of the novel, such as gun violence. 
Uh, We'll get into the drama around the show later, but the second season sort of plods along half-heartedly following the book. The third season is almost entirely about the lakeside section of the story while also not being about that at all. Yeah. Um, And I didn't even mention lakeside in the summary because it's important, but basically everything is important. I didn't want to just read the book to you as a summary. Um, Overall, the TV show is like fine, I guess. It's like um, the it's like three stages of grief. Truly, the first season is legit excellent. Like that was riveting TV. I could not stop watching it. It was just really good. They it, took yeah. what they had and they really made a, a whole gem out of it. A gold coin, if you will. Uh, yeah. Uh, the second season is good when certain characters are on screen, and the third season is fine. I guess. It has beautiful cinematography. Sometimes. It does. And the part when the actress for Bilquis does Ugh. an impression of the technical boy is stellar. I love her. That slapped. Um, I can't remember. Is the second rendition of media in the book? No. Because, okay. because Gillian Anderson was like, I'm out. Yeah. Brian Fuller's out. I'm out. That's what I thought. Kristen and- Chenoweth. He's out. I'm out. Well, that makes sense because she is very loyal to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it, it made me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like, it felt like, did Gwen Stefani write this? It was very strange. <laughs> it made me feel, I'm just like, hmm. Uh, if you at least the show is very inclusive. If it was a mostly white cast, yeah, and then they did that, I'd feel even worse. Yeah, but like this, like it almost felt like the fetishization of a stereotypical Asian like loves Hello Kitty and anime and is a Twitch streamer. Yeah, and it's one of those things too where it's like there's nothing. There's I don't think there's anything wrong with her being Asian, but like. Everything else on the, top of the it. The way in which she is Asian, it feels like they're trying to channel the global perception of social media and its yeah. prominence in like East Eastern Asian countries at the same time as they're making American gods. So why is the the second media that way? And did she die? I don't know. She literally she just, just disappeared. Disappe- like wh- Literally, what the fuck? Is that going made on it in that even show? worse for me. Of like, why did you do this? It just felt yeah. really odd. It was a weird. Okay, I didn't think it was in there, but I had to double check because it'd been so long. But it felt really weird, and I didn't. I I thought that a lot of the changes to make it more inclusive are really good, and that was a weird one. There's yeah, I love that, and we'll talk about this more later. I love that Salim and the Jin got more screen time. <sighs> I love them and their and then horribly they just, sad story. And then they just sent the gin away for reasons we may never know. Uh, Sam is super important in the fucking book and is barely in the show. Like, I don't know how many points it can give you for um, casting a non-binary indigenous person if you're not even going to put their most important section in the fucking show. Which one? I, I can't. The, the speech about belief. Oh. Like, why would they cut that? And Sam's role in that section. Yeah, that's really important. Sam's role in that section is like cut to like one appearance. Hmm. It's deeply strange. Anyway, let's talk about place. Um, American Gods as a title is very funny because Neil Gaiman used it as more of a thesis statement than a title. One of the essays I read was by Neil Gaiman and he was writing about, I'm working on a book about about American Gods. It's currently called American Gods, but that won't be the, the final title. Did you have the epilogue at the end of him talking about it? Yes, okay. I did. I did have that as well. But I think he talked about that in there as well. Yeah, he and did. And I also, I, 
he was like, I no one asked me the question of how I could write this not be from America. And he's like, I was let down. <laughs> um so Gaiman wanted to retitle it, but they did a cover mock-up and the name stuck. Um, but we're going to use the title as a way to look at the story's themes, and we're going to start with America or American. Um, so one thing worth noting early is that Gaiman is an immigrant to America. He was born in England and moved to the U.S. and wrote American Gods to better understand the, exp- the and explain the country as an outsider. Like, that is his stated goal. He has said that. That is from the mouth of the author. Do you think he achieved that? Uh, I think he achieved the goal of explaining the country as an outsider. Yeah. Yes. I do. I think he explained America. No. Yeah. Because I don't. I don't know that American can be easily explained. It's too big. Um. It's a really interesting perspective. In some ways, he brings to light things that we don't consider because we live here. And in some ways, I feel like he completely misses really important things. One of the most notable to me, uh, was explored in the show, which is Vulcan which is using Vulcan, the god, to roll company towns and violence and the worship of the Second Amendment all into one in big, inextricable ball. So what exactly about it didn't work for you? I'm curious. What about what? The the Vulcan stuff? Oh, no, that did work for me. Oh, okay. No, I liked that part. Okay. Um, the st- I thought you meant the misses. Most importantly, he missed that point. No, Gaiman missed that. Okay. Because that's not in the book. I think that the show did a good job of exploring things from the perspective of an American. I was going to say, I really like that part. So I'm really curious what you didn't like. No, I like that part. Um, The stories that America is built on came from a variety of sources. When you think of America, you may think of cultural cliches like the American dream, symbols like apple pie, or places like Hollywood, or landmarks like the Statue of Liberty. All of those things come from different sources, right? Like the statue, like they talk about in the show, the Statue of Liberty is from France. Yeah. Um, uh, so you can either see that fact that so many of these things are sourced from other places or built by different people. You can see that as either not American at all or by virtue of being from so many sources, totally and completely American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that American Gods is getting at. America is both a conglomerate of seemingly disparate elements masquerading as the same thing. You can think of the common analogy of a melting pot as a metaphor for immigrant assimilation in America. That was like the original goal. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, so you can think of it as, as you can think of America as a conglomerate of seemingly disparate elements masquerading as the same thing and as a collection of stolen things from other places. Both are true at the same time. I was recently been getting so much content about the fight to get um, people's stuff out of museums, mm-hmm. in particular British museums. Yeah. And I don't know if you've listened to some of the responses from from the British museums, but essentially, like, they don't have the ability to take care of them, and it's ours. It's ridiculous. I mean, that's what it, like, came down to. Bro, you know... <laughs> It stayed there in forever until you took it. <laughs> and they did destroy it. Yeah. Like, they have destroyed it anyways. That part reminded me of that. Um, but something we can talk about now, and also through the rest of the episode, um, is the idea of America as a nation of immigrants, uh, which is not untrue, is also only part of the picture. Because Native Americans exist. Yeah. Um, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of nations here before the first European landed on the shores. Um, things brought here from other cultures have subsumed what was here before, sometimes violently, sometimes in a way that purposefully erases the meaning something had before colonization. 
one of the best examples of this, which I'm frankly surprised was in neither the book or the show, uh, is Mount Rushmore, a monument to American co- presidents carved into the Black Hills of South Dakota, a sacred site for several Native tribes of the region. So, like, I feel like maybe at one point I did hear this, but I don't remember. So this felt like new information. How the fuck did I not know this? Yeah, that was a, that's that's so a sacred site. And they carved American presidents into it. And in the, sh- in the movie... Um, uh, National Treasure. No, the one where the guys, Richie Rich, he lives in it or something what? like that. <laughs> I gotta f- find it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's that. Um, the land, the land of the Black Hills was stolen, and a monument to four white people was built on it. And because it is literally carved into a mountain, it cannot be removed or replaced. Like it cannot. Oh, Actually, so you know sorry. what? Yeah, there's there, it has lasers in it too. What the fuck? Yeah, it's a good uh, movie. Actually, I I take it back. I think they do mention it in the book. It's kind of a passing reference about native people like hanging hanging off the side and then pissing on the on Mount Rushmore, <laughs> which like do it. Um, so I take it back. It was mentioned. It's just not a key part of the book. Um. What was once this very sacred site now honors four white men, which whatever you may feel about those presidents in particular seems pretty fucking disgusting. Yeah. Um, like once you learn about the Black Hills and how the land was stolen and used, you can't help but feel some kind of way about Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Uh, and like that's America to me. That's tourist attractions to me. I don't mean this to say that there is nothing good about America, only that we cover up the atrocities of colonialism by building monuments to it and charging people to see it. That's that's America, baby. It's yeah. Um, yeah. This is a quote from Neil Gaiman's American Gods, a postmodern epic for America by Susan Gorman. Uh, Americans have turned the spiritual into the commercial, thereby turning powerful lands into whimsical locations for hot dog stands. Meaning has not been denied to those places, but it has been redirected, no longer religiously holy, but now linked to kitsch and consumption. In Gaiman's work, spirituality moves from the high cultural of cathedrals into the low cultural culture of tourists, and not especially highbrow ones at that, reveling in its movement. In this America, powerful land is not fully understood, except in that it is powerful. Meaning is dissociated from its origins, indicating an example of postmodernity's effect on the world of the narrative. So this passage and much of American Gods as a whole does seem to be about that overlapping of the sacred and the profane. Again, the idea of redirecting what might have been holy, whether literally or figuratively, to what Gorman identifies as, quote, kitsch and consumption uh, feels so true to me. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting because I don't think that moving ritual sites out of cathedrals, not like literal cathedrals, but the idea of a cathedral, um, I don't think that that idea is not is inherently bad. Um, It's also not inherently good. Just to be clear, as with much of Gaiman's work, there's a lot of occupying of middle spaces in a way that may not always be satisfying to hear about. Um. But with Christianity being the dominant religion in the U.S. and with the history of the religion denying access to sacred texts to the average person, uh, I also feel like shifting religion from high to low culture is not necessarily bad. I don't mean that every sacred site should have a hot dog stand on it, nor do I mean that every hot dog stand is a sacred site. That's uh, blasphemous. Unless you really like hot dogs, in which place... Josh Josh prays at the altar of the hot dog. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's praying at the Wiener Mobile. Um, I don't mean either of those things. I only mean that fewer pieces of important information or connection to to sacred things or sacred ideas should be locked away. This 
like to me this feels even more like the conversation being had about the things that in the British museums. Yeah. That's another thing. So John Stewart, John Stewart? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the one who has the <laughs> HBO show. John uh, Oliver. John Oliver. Thank you. I always say that. He has a really good like he does like a a whole like section on different topics and one of them was that and they talked about how um the British looted a place in one of the countries in Africa and took their like gold slabs of something. Mm-hmm. And then you like they have to pay to go see them, right? And then and then there are s- some situations in which the things that they looted aren't even out for people to see, right? They just took them. They just took them, and so that this totally this reminds me of that. Okay. Yeah, I'm um, glad this conversation is finally being had for real. Yeah. Uh, importantly, what Gorman gets at here is that this idea of over overlapping the sacred and the profane is less about access and more about charging for access. Mm-hmm. Putting a hot dog stand in a sacred site is not honoring that site, right? It's monetizing it. And I think the novel is conscious of this. In a lot of ways, buying and selling is a sacred act in the US, or if not actually sacred, then maybe a form of worship. Absolutely, capitalism is worshipped. And I don't mean that as a hyperbole. Like, yeah, <laughs> like people like worship capitalism and think that it is the end all be all of our prosperous, prosperous world. Yeah, like, it's it sha- capitalism shapes people's worldview in a way that is not dissimilar from how religion can shape a worldview. Yeah, it's not necessarily a thing that people worship. I and I think part of it is that it it that common idea of that it feels inescapable. We can't imagine a world without capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't require faith. And so, like, I'm not going to call capitalism a religion, but the way that capitalism functions and the the way that it shapes reality, like it, there is, I think, some overlap in terms of how people engage with it. Yeah, I just, it feels, it feels like people will fight like tooth and nail to defend it when we don't need to defend, yeah, <laughs> defend it. And like the, I don't know, just this absolute need to, to consume and consume and consume. And that's how you gain like success just feels like, fucking kneeling at capitalism's goddamn tomb yeah or altar i guess i don't know that there is anything the u.s holds in higher esteem than money yeah uh anyway my point is i think gorman makes a really great point about how this novel collapses collapses the sacred and the profane high and low culture etc they're the same thing here Again, this is this comes to play in a lot of Neil Gaiman's work. I would say most argue well, actually, the ones that we've covered so far. It's a big deal in Sandman. Maybe not as far as we are into Sandman, but um, it's a big deal in Sandman. It is a big deal in Good Omens. Like he's very interested in yeah. collapsing the sacred and the and the profane and high and low culture. Um, and within the world of the novel, it's also the same thing, right? Because Odin is a washed up grifter and a mm-hmm. former king of Ireland is a drunken redneck, right? Like they're, it's collapsing these boundaries between things we think of as um, fundamentally at odds. Yeah. Um, Gorman goes on to provide a really interesting take on the role of roadside attractions and commercial spaces in the book. I think it's really true that these places, which are kitschy and weird and don't really add anything to the landscape, um, they really do, as Gorman argues, assert difference and place. Mm-hmm. Like, you may not know one stretch of Midwest Highway from another stretch of Midwest Highway, but you're going to know the one with the giant 
world's largest rubber band ball on it, right? Or like when I go to my parents' house and see the giant dinosaurs. Yeah. like Or, or like the big Paul Bunyan. Yeah. These like kitschy things mark place in a way. Yeah. Even if they are. They are a map in, in of yeah, themselves. Yeah. Um, they mark something, whether or not that something is like, quote unquote, real or important, they become so by virtue of marking them. The space with the Paul Bunyan statue didn't mean anything until it had the Paul Bunyan statue yeah. on it. And now it is an important place. It yeah. is the place with the Paul Bunyan statue. We used to visit it all the time. Yeah, of course. Um, these attractions are much like the gods in that sense. We decided we needed them. Therefore, we created them. Therefore, they have power. Mm-hmm. If we stop paying attention to them, they lose that power. The Paul Bunyan statue will get faded and collapse eventually, right? It's just like in Hook when you have to believe in the fairies. <laughs> exactly. Um, as we discussed in the Sandman episode, this is a running theme in Gaiman's work. The idea that we tell stories and those stories have real power, even if they are fictional, because everything is to some degree a story we are telling. And to tie in yet another Neil Gaiman work, this also factors into the humanism of good omens. Um, Humanism assigns importance to humanity over divine or otherwise supernatural matters, making humans the architects of the universe, not in the, like, they created the Big Bang or whatever, but in the sense that we are responsible for ourselves. There is no supernatural force guiding Mm -hmm. our behavior. Um, that's humanism. So if gods are created by human belief, we create the gods. We have only ourselves to blame for what they do and what we do in their name. I think that right there is, is what connected, like having the other Odin at the end, what connected it all for me. Of, right. Like, we created this grifter. Yeah, we did that. <laughs> we have to take responsibility for that. Um, we also create destruction, globalization, the harm of mass media, etc. It's all us, right? Like any good thing that has happened in the name of a god, that's us. Any bad thing that has happened in the name of a god, that's us. That's America, baby. And, and not just America either. That's humanity. Like yeah. everything we do in, in from the perspective of humanism is our responsibility. We can be as responsible for, you know, something beautiful as we can be for something monstrous. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from Folklore Intertextuality and the Folkloresque in the world works of Neil Gaiman by Tim Evans. In American Gods, American culture is not presented merely as a collection of stories and discrete folklore forms that represent immigration, ethnicity, or region. The work is a road novel, a genre that Gaiman sees as characteristic, perhaps archetypal, uh, sorry, as a characteristic, perhaps archetypal narrative American American narrative form. It presents an America in constant motion, an America where communities and identities are fluid. Much of the novel comments on the culture of the American road. It is full of diners, fast food chains, convenience stores, yard art, small towns that are passed through so quickly that the only memory they leave are signs that say things like, quote, home of the runner up to the state under 12 speed skating championship, unquote. I think one of the things that goes unappreciated by Americans is how fucking big America is. Yeah. Um, it is huge. I don't know if you all know this. America's enormous. <laughs> it is enormous. Um, Which is why it's hard to break it down into one culture. Right. It is the third biggest country in the world after Russia and Canada. And unlike Russia and Canada, it is mostly all habitable. Ha- habitable. <laughs> it is mostly all habitable, which is reflected in our po- population. Also the third largest in the world. Crazy. Um. But it is it is behind China and India rather than behind Russia and Canada. The India is crazy. Yeah. The India is a, a lot of people in a very small place. Yes. Um, and again, while we have that metaphor of a melting pot to describe America, 
It's not accurate. Um, mm-hmm. Later, people started using the metaphor of a tossed salad a to describe. A terrible choice. <laughs> a terrible choice of I words. I don't know that tossed salad had the connotation that it does today when <sighs> people started applying it. You know what? I hope, culture. I hope it did. I hope someone was like, no one will. <laughs> no, no one's one, going to know. No one's going to know. How are they going to know? <laughs> um. Anyway, later people started using the metaphor of the tossed salad to describe how America is a harmonious mixture of disparate elements as opposed to one unified thing in which all your differences disappear. Um, There are unique subcultures and ways of life all over this enormous country. People in Washington and people in Florida have some things in common, of course, but we're also very different. People in Seattle have different ways of living than people in small towns in Washington. Oh, we know it. Yeah. I think this is something that American Gods understands very well. Uh, the concept we have of a united America with a shared culture is flawed in a lot of ways. I've been slowly, I actually just finished, I s- very slowly read through Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities. If you know, you know. Um, and each community <laughs> I is, don't know. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to read. Um, and each community within America is itself a place of shared history and culture within the larger culture of the United States. And I think the book is in part about that. The book being American Gods, not mm-hmm. Imagine Communities. Um, <laughs> the book is in part about that. As much as the world has the perception of America as like a unified thing, no doubt because we put united in our fucking name. <laughs> um, people from here largely do not see us as unified necessarily. Yes, we're all Americans, but the America, the America, the, the Northwest perception of the South is probably about as negative as the South's perception of the Northwest. Yeah. (laughs) Like, we don't always have great opinions of each other. Yeah. Whether, and those opinions are built on stereotypes and all like, you know, you I, know. I see you this. Know. I see this conversation a lot on TikTok of um and other places as well, just online. Of you know that that trend right now that's happening of like things that would send insert thing here mm-hmm. into a coma. Yes. Someone did that for America, and it was just like things that like happen in America, <laughs> like just things that happen. It just might not be the things that you think about. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was like like something about like being in a bad neighborhood. Um, backing into a into a parking spot and some other things that like <laughs> it might not be what you think about when you think of America having a word for the kind of road that runs alongside the freeway <laughs> what's that about but it's just like yeah I don't know if you've seen like the pictures of like 4th of July parties in other countries it's fucking hilarious no, it's just it. fucking hilarious um, we may have some sense of solidarity again Benedict Anderson um, but that sense of solidarity is flimsy and I think people are more loyal to the concept of America than we are to one another Um, so preview for this next article which is going to come up a few times I think it makes some good points and I also think it makes some very silly and spurious ones um, but even arguments I disagree with can be a valuable part of this discussion. So that's why I'm bringing it up anyway. Um, she doesn't like anything that disagrees with her. No, I don't. <laughs> anyway, let's return to the idea of how America has intentionally erased and commodified the pre-colonial history of this land and how that can often go beyond our borders into how other cultures perceive our history. I don't have enough information to say whether it's common outside of the U.S. to believe that Native Americans are more of a mythical thing than a real existing people. Um, but 
because that attitude is so prevalent, even within the U.S., and because of how Native Americans appear in American gods, I have a suspicion that that's the case. So I can speak to this a little bit. Okay. I worked at a outlet mall that is on um, Native land. It's on a reservation. And it had a lot of tourists that came from Canada. Mm-hmm. And I had somebody come up and say, can you tell me where the reservation is? <laughs> And I said, my boss, I think, was like, move a little to the left. <laughs> and he's like, you're on it. And like, they're like, they like, clearly they were expecting, like, t- they were expecting TPs. Which is not even, not even this area. Geographically incorrect. And so they went on to this like sputtering, trying to not sounding offensive question of, well, where can we see native things? Right. And we directed them to the casino. <laughs> Because because there's a lot of native native art in there. Sure, but it's also w- the the museum. Yes, yeah, you do have a museum. Yeah, that's true. But uh, it was just one of those things of like, well, where can I see? Like, uh, where are they? It kind of reminds me of Brave New World uh-huh. of when they go yeah. visit visit the outside world. I can't remember what they're called, but um, it was like this like, well, where where do I see the teepees? So I do I do think that there definitely is some of that. Yeah. Um, but uh. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was really funny. My boss is like, move a little to the left. <laughs> um, so this is a quote from why adapting Neil Gaiman's American Gods for TV is a bad idea by Abraham Josephine Reisman. Um, this is a quote from the book. Uh, there are creator spirits who found the earth or made it or shit it out. But you think, you know, but you think you know about it. Who's going to worship coyote? Whiskey Jack tells Shadow. We never built churches. We didn't need to. Really? No houses of prayer? How then do you account for the long houses the Iroquois built for their prayer ceremonies and no true gods that anyone bothered worshiping? That's an insane generalization about how about more than 10,000 years worth of spiritual culture across an entire continent. This is one of the arguments. This is me now, Melissa. Uh, this is one of the arguments that I really agree with in this article. I think that any portrait of America that doesn't include Native Americans is a deeply, 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 deeply flawed one. I, I so 100% agree because, I mean, not just the even because they were just completely erased from this, from like history, essentially. But like you can't currently you really can't talk about America without talking about like native history. Yeah. It's, I think it would be really difficult to truly. I'm sure some people can, but, uh, I <laughs> but just, they're doing a bad job. I just think it would be it, it would be difficult to really uh, like understand America without that history. Yeah. Agreed. Um. And Native Americans aren't completely absent from the story of American gods. Um, Wisa K. Jack and Sam Black Crow do appear in the book, as well as Iktomi in the show, who is initially played by a white man. Uh, but they're also they're also distant in many ways. Uh, Wisa K. Jack exists almost entirely in the quote unquote backstage, how it's referred to. And while Sam Black Crow is an important part of the narrative, in my opinion, um, and is half Cherokee. Uh, in the book, Sam uses she, her pronouns. In the show, they, them pronouns. Um, so when I'm talking about the book, I'm going to use she, her pronouns. Um, so while Sam Black Crow is an important part of the narrative and is half Cherokee, she's also a minor background character. And I have, like, complicated feelings about her history being written by a white man, you know? Especially, like, not even an American white man. I mean, yeah. maybe that's better. I don't know. Fuck. Um, it's not that Wisa K. Jack or Sam are bad or poorly written, nor even necessarily bad representation, but there doesn't seem to be much of an interest in Native folklore in either the book or the TV show, despite Native iconography being heavily present, such as the totem pole yeah. in the opening credits. I think it, I think it is like 
a total mist when you're talking about gods in America to just like not really deep. Yeah. Delve deep into there. I did like the one where he goes, I can't remember his name, the one guy, and he goes into his trailer and it's like a whole. That's we. That, he calls him Whiskey Jack. Oh, he okay, that know. is him. Uh, oh, okay, I he get can't, it. It's, it's, he can't say that. He doesn't know how to say the name. Well, he doesn't see it written. So he doesn't, he hears, oh, he's, it's right. some, he says it's something like Whiskey Jack. That's right. It's, it's like, I, I pardon my pronunciation. I th- it's like Wisa K. Jack. That's right. I remember this now uh, in the book, but I like in the in the show. I really liked that part. Yeah, it was pretty and fun. Yeah. Um, as Reisman says here, it's a huge generalization to suggest that indigenous people in what's now known as America didn't worship "quote unquote" true gods. But yes, fucked up. <laughs> like, kind of fucked up to say. That's fucked up to say. But I do think that that's a bit disingenuous about what's being said in that section of the book. Even if I also agree that there's sometimes a carelessness with Native American history and beliefs in American gods. The point of the quote, which comes from Wisa K. Jack, is not that Native Americans don't worship at all. That's not what they're saying. That's not what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, what he's saying is that their worship takes the form of gratitude and seeing themselves as part of this interconnected reciprocal relationship with the world. When he when he says we didn't build churches, he doesn't mean he he doesn't mean we had no houses of worship. He means our reverence for God, for gods and our, and our way of worship is not to park ourselves in a pew and listen to mm-hmm. a man speak at us in a language we don't understand, mm-hmm. which is how a lot of historically um, Christian practices happened, you know, yeah. like with this is more Catholicism, but like speaking in Latin to people who don't speak Latin. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what it's that is what that is communicating that's what that passage is communicating not that native american people did not worship whatsoever now i again i don't want to say then that the book is flawless in its portrayal of native americans and that there's nothing to criticize there i just as always think we could should criticize the thing that is there and not the thing that we imagine is there yeah um i think it is absolutely 100% fair to be skeptical of the interpretation of Native American worship as being about interconnectedness and reciprocity and that kind of thing. I think it is fair to be skeptical of that coming from the mouth of a real-life white man by way of a fictional Native American man. Please, by all means, be skeptical. (laughs) Do not swallow that without asking who is feeding it to you. Um, But I think we should, again, I think we should criticize what deserves to be criticized. The fact that Native Americans play such a small role in the narrative and what seems to be a factually incorrect statement about the absence of dedicated houses of worship and try to understand what's actually being said there. It's not that Lisa K. Jack is saying that Native Americans have no gods, which would be false. Wild. Only that their relationship with the gods is less about venerating those gods in a dedicated house of worship and more about living well and in harmony with their fellow beings. Everything that they do is worship. Yeah, that's that's what's being said in that yeah. statement. Now, you can disagree with that statement and be like, that's factually incorrect. And I would be like, you're probably fucking right. You know, <laughs> I've read like there are, are certainly some native people who currently and historically have worshipped in that exact way. Yeah. But there's hundreds upon like there's so many tribes. They don't all use teepees. And they yeah, don't all they worship do. the same God. We can't speak with authority about any one of them and say this is how it's done because they're different from one another. Yeah. Um, and some of them were so big that different geographical yeah. regions of the same tribe were different. Exactly. Like we can't we cannot speak we cannot paint with a broad brush here mm. because these Native Americans were not just a monolith of Native Americans. There were different 
cultural groups within there. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is that I think American gods and making Native Americans and Native American folklore such a small part of the story is missing is missing a huge piece of the story of America. Leaving that out is part of the history of genocide in this country. Yeah. To not view the history of Native Americans as crucial to the story is part of the problem yeah. with how Native American people are treated in this country. Um, there are gestures made toward it in the narrative, and I think some of those gestures are successful, but it doesn't feel right to have a book about the fabric of America be so lacking in Native American presence. Yeah, I, I didn't even notice that. And then when I read it, I'm like, wow, that is like a huge oversight. Yeah. It's, it's a huge oversight and a missed opportunity. Absolutely. And like, it's one of those things where maybe he didn't feel qualified to write about it. Okay, well, then partner up with somebody, buddy. Like, yeah. maybe he didn't know about it. Well, then learn. The burden, you know? I guess the burden of of your ignorance is on him. Yeah. The yeah. burdens of your own ignorance is on you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything else to say about the American part of American Gods? Not really. Okay. It so was good. It was interesting. So let's switch gears a little bit to talk about the gods part of the title uh, and the role of myth in this book. And I'm using the word myth to describe the folklore, religions, and cultural traditions of various cultures, not to say that these things aren't true or real. One time I saw a person who had a shirt, this was when I was working at that same um, outlet mall, and had a bunch of like... um uh, Greek gods and stuff on it and it said theology and I thought mm -hmm. that was really interesting and I'll never forget that. Yeah. Um, it is possible for something to be both mythical and real such as Johnny Appleseed who comes up in the novel. John Chapman was a real person. Johnny Appleseed is a mythical figure. I did not know that. Both have significance. I didn't right? know they were really real. Yeah. Um, and just the idea of like what is real and what is not is part of this book. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. One of the many things I think American Gods makes clear is that whether or not, well, we're not going to talk about it later. We're going to talk about it right now. <laughs> later, as in now. <laughs> One of the many things I think American Gods makes clear is that whether or not these things are verifiable or provable, they are nonetheless real, right? Odin is real. Until we decide he's not. And yes. like, that's literally what it is. Because we created Odin and he has all the, and he has had real impacts on the world, even if he is not real in the sense that we can see or touch or verify him, right? Odin is real to all of us, regardless of what religion we practice and the way that many abstract concepts are real. Democracy is real because we believe in and participate in its creation, but you cannot see, touch, verify democracy, right? Same with things like the value of money or the concept of freedom or capitalism or any number of things that exist because of our belief, right? Or these, terrorism. Yeah, these, these things exist because we make them exist and we believe in them and because of that, they are real, even if we cannot point to it and say that's there. It is. It's we're gonna like push someone into an existential crisis with this. <laughs> I think it's easy to get into an existential crisis with this because then you start being like, "Fuck, what, what is, is real? What is this? Is this is the when I go back to like nothing matters? Mm -hmm. Nothing matters. You is it? You know, you gotta watch everything all at once. Are we gonna everything bagel or are we gonna googly eye? They're yeah. the same. In, they're inverse. They're the same. Yeah, nothing. Nothing matters or nothing, nothing matters. matters. <laughs> Um, 
Or, as Mark Hill puts it in uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, an outsider's critique of American culture by Mark Hill, uh, at the center of any culture are its myths. They are the country's favorite children's stories, the most popular subjects in literature and film, and the well to which political speechwriters continu- continually return. They are a map to a culture's values, morals, and ideological beliefs, the glue that binds a society, get- society together. Jerome O. Steffen says that, quote, myths are common and important elements in all cultures because they are essential to cohesiveness and unity. Not only do they explain the origins, the present state, and the future of cultures, they also provide spiritual links to supernatural designs, which which often contain definitions of uniqueness and superiority, unquote. Mythology, for all intents and purposes, is the soul of ideology. For American culture, the mythology of individuality is intimately tied to the principles of freedom and democracy. Uh, And this is a quote within a quote from Calabrese and Burke, um, quote, from the mythology of independence emerged the mythology of American individual freedom in general, particularly freedom of expression, which signifies for many an enduring tradition that is a foundation of American democracy, unquote. It is through the interrogation of a nation's myth that claims about national identity, character, and ideology can assert what lies at the heart of a culture. Just making sure... I just want to say I really appreciate reading these because I'll read a quote like that and be like, I don't know what the fuck they just said. <laughs> and then Missy will be like, as she's going to say, like, essentially it means this. Yeah. It is very helpful. Because <laughs> there are so many times when I'm like, I don't fucking know. Listen, I have fun reading this shit. I'm and glad I, you do. And I know it's not fun for everybody. So I am here... I am here to do it and then try to make it make sense. <laughs> I could do it in college, but my brain isn't there anymore. Yeah. And it was and it was stuff that I was studying for a long time. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it wasn't a, like it really is a skill you have to it work is at. Truly a skill. Um, so essentially what Hill is saying here, uh, when we interrogate a culture's myths, we can learn a, lo- a lot about that culture. When uh, what we want to avoid, however, is cultural imperialism or a lack of cultural relativism, the former being an imposition of one culture onto another, and the latter being the interpretation of other cultures as bad or abnormal Mm -hmm. when those words simply do not apply to something as large and varied as culture. But when we're looking at American culture, for example, something huge and domineering and also something we belong to, taking a look at the myths we believe in can be really insightful. So we could go on and on about the different myths that we believe in. And I feel like we actually do that every single episode. Um, So instead, let's look about the more let's look at the more common meaning of myths is in American gods. So there's Odin, Germanic god of war, poetry, sorcery, frenzy, poetry, and so on. God, it just didn't end. No, he he he's god of like a million things. Um, so Odin in America, American Odin, Mister Wednesday. <laughs> uh, he is an aging grifter named Wednesday, right? Does that mean America values aging people and grifters and Wednesday? No, not necessarily. It means those those are the values that survive in America. A really valid question here is, now hold on a second, America definitely values war, so why isn't Odin god of war here in America? Why doesn't he gain power from that? And I think the answer is that we have other ways of worshipping mm-hmm. war now. Mr. World, in the, at least in the show, who represents globalization, is one of them. The technology boy is one of them, given how much of war is conducted remotely via drones. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the military itself probably has a god within this universe. I think that would have been really cool to see. And it would have been like, it would have worked really well for yeah. me. Um, I also am very upset that they didn't make the joke of he's the god of hump day. Um, Odin's power in American gods, in, in the America of American gods, has been reduced because the things people might have worshipped him for once have become assigned to other concepts and deities. Which makes sense that he's now a grifter. Yeah. There is no need for Odin 
war god, all father in America because we have replaced the the brutality, uh, like the personal visceral brutality of war demonstrated in like the opening scene of the show with warfare conducted by remote drones. Yeah. Right? It also feels like war is no longer this ide- ideology, this this like thing that happens and is more a calculated, um, almost like like paper pushing kind of like thing whereas we have to go through all these different things and not just like pray to a god about it right so i i do kind of i read that i was like man i wish that they explored that because i think that would have been really interesting yeah and Um, it would have helped i think it would have helped me and probably other people understand why like wednesday more and why he's doing what he's doing yeah yeah there's a real you take what you can get attitude on the part of the gods um it makes sense that Odin goes by Wednesday as he's likely gaining a little bit of power every time someone uses that name. Like if he claims the name Wednesday for himself, Wednesday being derived from Odin's day. Yeah. If he claims the name Wednesday from for himself, conceivably when people like use that name or when they I don't I don't know who's worshiping Wednesday, but, you know, like when when people are like hump day, hump day, like conceivably with that commercial is about yeah. worshiping odin um conceivably within the universe of the show and the book he gains power when you know we all venerate wednesday uh, whoever's doing that great job yeah um, that's uh, like that to me though is like so perfect for him in that he's so self-involved he's uh-huh. like oh of course wednesday my day <laughs> like it just works for me yeah uh, Easter slash Astara is piggybacking on the cr- Christian traditions that took over for her own celebrations. Uh, it's not a glamorous life for either of them, but it works. And each version of these gods or other mythical figures is distilled from the original, whatever that might mean, to a uniquely American version. Thus, mm-hmm. American gods. It's not called gods in America. It's called American gods. These are the gods of America. I think that's why sometimes some of the things I read and some of the things that you have in here where people just, I think, don't get it, aren't seeing it that way. Right. Um, this is a quote from Mythological Melting Pot, a study of the use of simulacra in myth in Neil Gaiman's simulacra. <laughs> Do you know that word is like has haunted me? Oh, yeah. Since we talked about it. I'm sure I heard it multiple times. and didn't know what it was. So it just like filtered <laughs> yeah. out. But now I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> You'll never stop. Um, so I still forget which one is which. So that's the worst part. <laughs> simulacra is the fake thing, like the recreation of the thing. And the simulation is when it goes a step further. Which one was Main Street and Disney? A simulation. Okay. Um, so this is a quote from Mythological Melting Pot, a study of the use of simulacra and myth in Neil Gaiman's American Gods by Simon Cook and Syretha Doman apologize for a mispronunciation there and for the rest of the episode because there's a lot of words I don't know how to pronounce here Um, a more interesting case is Mad Sweeney the leprechaun tall brash and more often drunk than sober he seems to be a walking caricature of Irish Americans except that he dresses sounds and acts like a typical American redneck the fact that he identifies as a leprechaun shows the way he has been changed the leprechaun is a mostly American Irish creature while the mythological character he is based on was a human king of in Ireland. I'm so sorry. Uh, the story of how Mad Sweeney came to America, carried over by an Irish immigrant girl, hints at a second layer of colonization, similar to the way Sweeney has been colonized in America, where Shivna originated as a human king overcome by madness. It was the colonizing Christians who created the idea of 
leprechauns as the little people. The missionary Patrick, quote, condemned the former Celtic pantheon to the underworld to reside forever in the fairy mounds where they are believed to remain today. No longer the objects of intense belief, however, their identities and characteristics were blurred. This melded the traits separately introduced, and from this amalgam was slowly and unconsciously forged the contemporary leprechaun, unquote. And that's a quote from Winberry within the larger quote. That's a lot. Yeah. So it was beefy. Beefy. Uh, Sweeney is a particularly good example of the American part of American gods, mm-hmm. as Doman outlines here. He has mythological roots in Ireland, but the book doesn't go out of its way to remind you of that because this is the American version of the figure. His name is changed Shivna to Sweeney, plus the addition of Mad. Um, this sort of Americanized take on leprechauns, uh, how he dresses and sounds, etc. Uh, it's legit kind of surprising when you see him in the show and you expect a sort of redneck accent, but he instead speaks <laughs> with an Irish accent. The actor is Canadian and I don't know accents well enough to say whether his accent is good. <laughs> but to be honest, a bad Irish accent wouldn't be detrimental to the construction of the character yeah. either, given that he's Mad Sweeney, not the original Shivna. Um we know that there can be two versions of a god from the book's epilogue, which has Shadow travel to Iceland and coincidentally meet with what seems to be the original Norse version of, of Odin. This Odin makes it clear that while both he and Wednesday are Odin, they are not the same Odin. They are different versions of Odin. So it's like, I am not him, but he is me or something like that, right? Yeah, something something to that effect. Um, again, this strikes me as very American. Bringing the gods over is done unconsciously on the part of the people who came here, whether by force or by choice. But the idea of creating a whole new god that's built on American values and ideals, but shares the name of a different god just feels like America to me. Um, and one way of looking at this idea is explained in Only the Gods Are Real, the mythopoeic, 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 mythopoeic. (laughs) <laughs> dimension, that sounds right. <laughs> the mythopoeic dimension of Neil Gaiman's American Gods by Irina Rat- Ratya. Um, one can see the Norse god Odin as Mr. Wednesday, Shadow's employer, a grifter, permanently on the move. Chernabog, a Slavic god, can be seen as a retired knocker living in a small, dirty apartment smelling of cabbage and cats. <laughs> Queen of Sheba, Bilquis, is depicted as a prostitute. Egyptian gods Toth and Anubis, appearing in the novel as Mr. Ibis and Mr. Jekyll, are morticians. They are challenged by their adoptive land, which tries to assimilate their specificity and is therefore a, quote, bad land for gods, unquote. They struggle to survive and adapt, but nevertheless, they are confronted by the new gods competing for worshippers. As a result, they have to deal with a paradigm shift in which the old values represented by the old gods are facing destruction confronted by the new modern gods of computers, telephones, highways, television, and credit cards. Modern gods have suggestive names like media, Mr. World, an allusion to globalization, Mr. Town, allusion to urbanization, and technical boy. Um, I find it really interesting that Ratya invokes assimilation here, which is something that the U.S. demands of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Being an American immigrant is a lengthy process and requires taking the oath of allegiance, which asks you to support the Constitution, renounce allegiance and fidelity to any previous homeland, defend the Constitution against threats, and bear arms on behalf of the U.S. when required by law. Something that, like, people born here don't have to, don't have to do. Like, we don't have to swear that we're gonna, like, protect the Constitution and bear arms. We're forced to. It's when required by law. So, Basic, I think that it still would apply to American citizens because it's required by law. But like defending but we the don't Constitution? Have to like, we, yes, because it's when required by law. So mm-hmm. like if a draft occurs, I for see, example. I see. That said, we don't, it is assumed that of us when we grow up here, we do not have to swear it. But then again, we do have to do the Pledge of Allegiance in schools, which basically says the same thing. 
Um, I sat down for the Pledge of Allegiance, and you should too. Yeah. Um, stupid. It is stupid. Uh, and that's just the legal requirements, right? That's what's legally required of you. This obviously doesn't get into the cultural assimilation requirements of the U.S., which despite not having an official language basically requires you to speak English, despite not having an official religion and being founded on the principle of not having a state religion, um, will assume and treat you as if you are Christian. And if you are not Christian, it will look at you as transgressive and it will treat you differently depending on where you come from, why you came from there, what color you are, even if you literally had to take an oath stating that you renounce every single one of those things. It can't, It like, there is no better example of this than after 9-11. Right. Like, Absolutely. that must have been fucking devastating to people. Yeah. We, the general American we, are intensely skeptical of anything that doesn't immediately fit our concept for what American is, which naturally is white, Christian, and typically male. That's why there's so many people on conservative news saying um, soon there won't be white people, soon people of color will take over, and like, what's the problem? Like, and? Yeah, so... So like, what is the issue with this? When we're talking about the metaphorical gods and American gods, obviously, they aren't going through a lengthy legal process to get here. Right. But nonetheless, they're still going through assimilation. That would have been really cool to watch, though. (laughs) I want to watch Wednesday go through Ellis Island. I feel like that would have been really interesting. (laughs) Um, Whatever they were before they arrived in America, they become something else when they get here. And that process of of assimilation doesn't stop. They seem to get boiled down to their most literal Parsable interpretations. Toth and Ibis as morticians. They're the gods of wisdom and the dead. Chernobog as a retired knocker. There's actually dispute over whether Chernobog was a like quote unquote real Slavic deity or a personification of bad luck or something else. But still, the idea that he becomes a retired knocker in America the is fuck is a knocker. He hit the cows on the head. Oh, okay. Called a knocker. Uh, okay. Um, the- I, I literally, for some reason in my head, I, this is why I asked this because I knew this wasn't true. Someone who goes around and knocks on doors. <laughs> He's a door-to-door salesman. Yeah. Um, the fact that these these gods are boiled down to their most essential components is a process of assimilation. It's obviously very different from the real process of assimilation, but it is nonetheless about assimilation. Um, as much as I don't really care for the very involved backstories the show insisted on giving hmm. the gods, they're gods. They don't need backstories. Anyway. Especially, I feel like, especially in this situation. Yeah. Especially in this know. situation. Just like coming to America and like America shaping them, that doesn't need a backstory. The coming to America stories were enough, you know? And they were really good. And they were really good. Um, as much as I don't really care for them, I think the way that they handle the technical boy is a really good example of what this process look like. looks like. He starts off maybe as a human. I don't know. But he's, you never know. He starts off as the inventor of at the World's Fair who creates this pretty simplistic robot that isn't all that impressive to the crowd because it can only do what it's programmed to do and it cannot think for itself. That's in line with American values, right? We mm-hmm. want individuality. Um, fast forward to when the series actually takes place and the technical boy is now super successful. One of the most powerful new gods, in fact. And he's a whiny, slick, tech bro style brat. The American God, this specific American God, goes from the sort of American dream style down on his luck adventure to a powerful asshole. This really was interesting to, outline was interesting to read. After uh, the other day, I listened to the podcast, The Journal did a story about ChatGPT and the company that owns them in which they recently went from going from a nonprofit to a for-profit and like that just like slipped in perfectly of like, 
oh yeah, that tracks like for mm-hmm. real life, right? The, this company went from a nonprofit trying to like help the world to a for-profit company. Mm-hmm. And like people were upset about that. And that just like feels like he went from going to like wanting to create something for the world to what he is now. Right. Um, apologies. I have put in a cough drop. So please bear with my mouth sounds. Um, we can even bring the novel further and add another dimension to this construction of the technical boy, even though the novel doesn't include the backstory, because the novel paints the technical boy according to the stereotypes of when it was written in the late 90s. In that period, the internet was only just beginning to be a thing that like normal people used, right? Uh, enthusiasts were the stereotypical kind of nerd, hence the emphasis on the technical boy's fatness. He's, he's very much the image of the kind of person who would have been assumed to be invested in technology at the time, even though that image was beginning to shift. Yeah. Um, now it's totally different. Yeah, which is not to say that there's nothing wrong with the way the technical boy is talked about. The emphasis on his fatness still feels fat phobic yeah, to me. Yeah, it just it's just really hard. It's, it's somehow it's still really hard yeah to like just get away from fat equaling bad. There's a right. re- there's an amazing um comedian I follow on TikTok that she she's fat and she's like she says something she's doing stand up she's like I'm fat and people are like oh no she's like stop 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 I'm fat if you were short I wouldn't be like oh but no you're smart and like that's how it feels <laughs> right. yeah um the emphasis on the technical voice fatness in the book still feels fat phobic to me because it is used to, il- to illustrate his immorality right yes. Um, fatness is just one more example of how awful he is when in fact it could be an examination of many other things but in the book it is just he's awful therefore he is awful and he spends too much time on the internet therefore he's fat yeah that also kind of reminded me of is a sandman yeah sandman yeah with, the, with desire yeah. or sorry not desire um despair despair being like fat yeah, like like the, um, the association the, between despair and fatness this right? is starting to become a trend yeah <laughs> um but I think the fact that he is slim but not muscled in the show shows yet another shift in how we see technology and the people who represent the tech industry. He doesn't look malnourished per se, but if you told me that the technical boy survives on Soylent and Monster Energy drinks, I would believe you. Listen, I know that sounds like a joke, but I worked at a tech company. It was like my first real job and someone literally did that. Yeah. Like Soylent had just come out and he literally, he's like, he literally only drank. He was soil shitting it. himself every hour. <laughs> he had to have been. So like that's a real like I know sometimes it's like ah ha ha, but no, this really all, fucking yeah. happens. There like this this is unfortunately a real thing. Um, that's also the first time I heard about Bitcoin because they did a, a white elephant and someone bought someone uh, oh my God. a Bitcoin at the time. I Wild. hope they still had it. Yeah. At the time it was only worth like ten cents. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, that's how fucking old I am. So my point with this is is that the god the technical boy has like changed he changes in these in these ways because part of the construction of him is the perception of technology in the moment right so it makes like the fact that technical boy is fat in the book and not in the show are not at odds with one another to me it makes sense to me that the technical boy of 1999 or 2001 when the book came out looked that way and the technical boy of today looks this way like that tracks for me yeah it's still fat phobic yeah it's kind of like uh how it's not the same but it reminds me like how south park does the guy who plays wow yeah 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 totally that that particular like image of what a person who lives online looks like and that's just not true anymore yeah now we all live online (laughs) we all live online the most famous twitch streamers are like 
really good looking people, yeah. super hot ladies. It turns out we just want to see hot people no matter where they are. Yeah, it doesn't matter where they are. <laughs> My point here is that we can trace the evolution of this concept of technology through the presentation of this character in the early 1900s in the show, the late 90s in the book, and then today in the show. All the all of them are the technical boy. All of them are reflective of the technology and the perception of technology in a given time period. I think that's also like why it was so important for the, there to be like some updates within the show yeah. that I'm so glad at least Brian Fuller could put in motion. Yes. Right? There, there needed to be some changes just to make it relevant. Yes. And not seem cliche or old or out of touch or for some viewers even just impossible. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about gods? I mean, we're going to continue to talk about gods, but fuck gods. <laughs> you heard it That's first. not true. Um, but I, also fuck gods. I, am I right? If well, you well, know, I, you know what? <laughs> There's some hot gods in this. It's show. not for me, but I know Jillian uh, Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. Listen, she was in that. Like, Listen, Mi- Misty's going to be so happy. Yeah, she's gorgeous. <laughs> she's gorgeous. She is pretty great. She and she, I don't know. It, it would it would behoove you to go follow her on Twitter. Oh yeah, she's because great. she's spectacular on Twitter. Um, let's talk about gender and sexuality. Ready. Um, of all the essays I read on American Gods, almost none of them touched on gender. I find that both really telling and really frustrating because, in my opinion, this whole thing smacks of gender. Um, the fact that Laura not only dies to further Shadow's journey, but that she dies as a cheater, and not only that, but she literally dies with a man's penis in her mouth, is so intensely gendered that it feels cruel. Yeah. Right? Like, I was actually surprised on rereading the book this time that I think Laura is decently developed as a character. Her death is extremely cruel, but her character exists beyond the act of cheating. Um, and while it's definitely sort of a redemptive journey that still has her dying at the end, I didn't feel it was ultimately unsympathetic toward Laura. She's a hero in her own way, right? Yeah. I was, I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that I, that her, her, um, character in the book wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> But none of that compares to the show, which, in my opinion, did an incredible job of characterizing Laura. She sucks and I love her. Um, What works about Laura in the show to me is that she's immediately set up as someone who just absolutely chases death, not in a thrill seeking kind of way. But she is always so close to death. Um, I frankly did not realize you could get high on bug spray. Same. Um, and I, I really th- did think she was trying to kill herself. Yeah, I thought she was trying to kill herself in the scenes where she huffs br- bug spray in the hot tub. But even so, knowing that you can get high now from bug spray, um, I think you should probably not huff bug spray. Uh, in, any, yeah, in, in any situation. Yeah, even if it doesn't kill you, it is literally a thing meant to kill, right? Yeah. So despite the fact that she presumably was trying to get high. She's trying to get high on something that could kill mm-hmm. her as well as insects. There are lots of ways to get high that don't involve huffing an agent designed to kill. She you know? clearly chose that for a reason. It's yes. not like she doesn't have access to drugs. Right. <laughs> if she can buy that much bug spray, she can find someone to sell her weed. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure what Robbie probably had weed. Yeah. Also impeccable casting. Oh, yeah. For Robbie, impeccable. That man's terrible. Truly. Um, Even if bug spray does not kill you, it is a thing literally meant to kill, right? Proximity to death is what makes Laura feel alive. And when she dies, she really comes alive. Notably, on becoming somewhat alive again, she is drawn not to Shadow, but to Mad Sweeney, who is just as fucking self-destructive as she is. And that's why I like them, because I only like self-destructive characters. (laughs) Um, Now, the show ends up killing off Mad Sweeney. He does die in the book as well, but in a very different way. I fucking hated how it was done in the show. I think they should have just kept him alive. 
He was one of the only good parts of the show. He was spectacular and really hot. Absolutely. Um, so the show ends up killing off Mad Sweeney, and Laura's main purpose becomes getting revenge on Wednesday for killing Mad Sweeney, which sucks in a different way, frankly. Like, yeah. okay, great, cool. It's the same fucking thing. Yeah. Um, but in season one in particular, I loved how Laura was allowed to be this absolute disaster of a person who is also really brought alive by dying. Yeah. Um, I don't think that even seasons one representation, season one's representation of women is like perfect or anything, but I appreciate how Laura was allowed to be a character beyond Shadow's cheating wife who is now trying to redeem herself. Yeah, I kind of felt, I wrote this in there somewhere and then it's gone, but um, <laughs> I feel like the book was like, despite the penis in her mouth, she still did good. And the show was like, <laughs> because the penis in the mouth, we'll run with that. Yeah. And I think that that was brave and worked. Like it is because the penis in her mouth She's like it it tracks with her character and her development, whereas the book was like, despite that, the penis in her mouth, which was a transgression, she still can be, you know, it feels all right. the lore of the book feels like the betrayal yes. of cheating on Shadow made her made her bad and she's trying to redeem herself. But like, yes, the lore of the show, you're like, of course, she had Robbie's penis in her mouth. Yeah. Like and Shadow loved her anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Shadow knew what kind of woman she was. Yeah. So that's something I appreciated and I think worked really well. Like, yeah. yeah. You know what? She did. Yeah. And what? And what? And what? <laughs> what? And what about it? That's the, um, I think that's the difference of like when like you say like this is incredibly gendered and how that could be like not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, by season three, Laura was literally the only character I cared about, even if I overall thought the story was pretty dull. Yeah. Um, I would rather watch Disaster Woman stumble through conflicts I don't care about than watch Shadow very calmly be pushed from thing to thing w- w- without exerting any will on the plot. It really, so the, the third season was really interesting to me because it seemed like one show with two halves and one I would watch and one my husband would watch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my husband loves police procedural shows, like fucking loves them. Was watching Hawaii Five-0 last night. <laughs> and uh, I think that Laura's story is really interesting and fun. Yeah. Um, and like, I really liked it. Um, so yeah, I just felt like, I really felt like I was watching three different shows and then in the third season, two yeah <laughs> like it, it was, was wild each season seemed different and then the last se- so like what did i get i got f- f- four five shows kind of <laughs> five for the price of one yeah um so speaking of shadow very calmly being pushed from thing to thing without exerting any will on the plot whatsoever this is a quote from why adapting neil gaiman's american gods for tv is a bad idea by abraham josephine reisman there's one other cultural shift since 2001 could trip up the American God series, the oversaturation of flawed macho male protagonists and cable dramas. Unless the series undergoes a truly radical change in its TV adaptation, we'll end up with a show about a tough guy surviving with inner conflict, a sexy man fighting his demons and solving problems in a changing world. Snore. I don't agree with this interpretation of Shadow Lake at all. Like, s- not even a little. <laughs> um, he doesn't feel like he, he truly does not feel like toxic masculinity or... He doesn't feel like He doesn't that. even feel like he's struggling with inner conflict or demons. And that is actually what makes him, I won't use the word interesting, because to be honest, one of the busy- biggest failings of the book for me is Shadow's intense lack of personality. Um, but as Laura tells him in the book, Shadow may not be dead, but he's not fully alive either. Yeah. And that is more interesting than this idea of a flawed macho male protagonist with inner demons, right? That is more interesting to me than that. Just because he's buff doesn't mean he's macho man. 
Yeah, he's he's really not. I would say he's really hot. I agree. He's super hot. I watched. I knew him from the 100, mm. um, in which he sadly he left the show. Um, I don't know if he had American Gods first or not, but he left. The way in which he left the show was sudden. No one knew it was happening until it was happening, and then, uh, like, I guess there were allegations of racism. Mm. So bummer. Yeah, it is a bummer. Um. I think any internal conflict that Shadow has is over the moment he finds out Laura is not only dead, but died while cheating. Mm-hmm. He no longer feels any ties to their home. And even if traveling with Wednesday is not actually what he wants out of life, he no longer has any conflict over going. But he still loves Laura. He still loves Laura. Um, I also don't necessarily think that Shadow is particularly macho or even flawed. Flawed would make Flaws would make me like him more. He might be like a little emotionally distant, but he's always seemed kind of like the cultural platonic ideal of man. He's just his flaw is that he's stupid. (laughs) That's true. He's stoic and he's loyal, but he's not particularly interesting. He's a puppy, but he's not. He's like a lab, right? Labs are truly the worst pet name. It really was. But honestly, though, it works, right? He is really stupid and he's definitely a lab, which nothing against labs, but like that's like the stereotypical American dog. Mm -hmm. And really, we should American dogs is a different dog. But it it does work because he he does feel that way. He Uh feels like a puppy of like, you're really cute and there's uh, nothing going on between there's your ears. nothing you're really stupid but you come when i call you you're not flawed yeah you're a puppy yeah you can't be flawed and be a puppy puppies are perfect yeah puppies are perfect that's why we have american american dogs <laughs> That all that said, Reisman isn't wrong per se about gender in the book. I wish it went in went more into an examination of the myths of masculinity in American culture. Yeah. Uh, as an immigrant from the UK, so we share a lot of culture, but still, um, Gaiman is able to see the strangeness of American masculinity and comment on it. But Shadow just never really gets there for me. He doesn't really get anywhere. Shadow is my least favorite part of American Gods, unfortunately, because the book is about him, and I find him dull. And therefore, the book, really, it's not my favorite. I think it's exquisitely plotted. I think it's very well executed. But it, like, it's certainly not my favorite. Uh, yeah, I, I I, think that my best example of it is, I think I said it to Missy. Maybe it was on the podcast or not. It feels like My Chemical Romance is Black Parade. Yeah. It's good. It's technically, it's good. It's a masterpiece, right? Uh-huh. But I just don't really like it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not that it's and bad. You know what? I think that's a mature position that yeah, we're taking. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's good. We're being very mature. Uh, the Black Parade. We're is, only thirty-four. Is a really good album. There's mm-hmm. no getting around that. It's just not. It's my least favorite. Yeah. Um, Someone's gonna murder me. I think that there's a purpose in the dull, in Shadow's dullness in the same way that some of the other things we've discussed that take place in the late 90s are commenting on like disaffection, such as Fight Club and Daria. Like there is, I think you can draw an interesting line between Shadow, Daria, and the narrator and Tyler Durden, right? I yeah. think that there's something interesting in comparing those three. Um, but those had an emphasis, Fight Club and Daria, had an emphasis on flaws that never really manifests for me in American Gods. Yeah, I think the book is doing something with Shadow, but it just never really grabbed me. Um, so I agree, the show could have done, or the book could have done more with masculinity, but I disagree that the book leans on Shadow's like inner demons because I don't think he has any. <laughs> Truly, what is his inner demon though? I don't know. <laughs> because like he went to jail, right? But he didn't go to jail for like a fucking murder. Yeah, he went to jail because he like 
He was coerced into committing a crime by his wife. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. he loved and would do anything for. Because he's a puppy. Yeah. So I, that's the thing is I just can't. He, he's not there for me. His inner demon. Like, I don't know. It, it's, call me a sexist, but I would rather read about a man with inner demons than Shadow. God, you know? you're such a misogynist. I know. Um, to switch gears with the show a bit, I want to talk about the sex scenes specifically. Let's. Um, in the first season with showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green, we have a variety of sex scenes. And amazingly, we see a lot of penises. Um, more penises than I think I've seen in any other show. I don't recall seeing that many dicks. I can I I know it's not a show, but Jackass sure did have a oh, lot. Oh sure, sure. God, I've never seen that. Well, many it was penises. a show, but the one with all the penises was right. Not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is actually really good. Who would have thought all those most of those dudes would have come out being like really good guys? Yeah. Um, more pen. Oh, sorry. Some of those penises are seen in a sexual context. Many of them are not. But the fact that we do see penises is really interesting to me. Now, when I, I really want to hammer home here. When I say interesting, I mean interesting. I'm not using interesting as a code word for good or bad. Okay? Please, please put that on a sticky note in your brain. Every time I say interesting, I mean interesting. The literal, the literal sense of interesting. I literally mean interesting. I find it interesting. Um, of course, we can point to Brian Fuller being a gay man and say, well, that's why there are penises in the show. But I find that extremely uninteresting and borderline offensive. Well, I'm going to be like, put myself all out there. That was my first thought. I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And I read this. I'm like, oh, that's probably not a good way to think about this. <laughs> but like to be to be totally transparent, sure. that was my first go to thought. Yeah. But then that like <laughs> that brings it down to like, I was like, that's really shallow. <laughs> that's really that's not a great way to think about that, is it? Um. I will credit Fuller with being gay for the really amazing sex scene between Selim and the shit. Um, But I don't like the feeling of saying, well, obviously there are a lot of visible penises because Fuller is gay. That's not, not only is that not satisfying to me, but it's also like, like, okay. And so what? You know, like, is that a crime? (laughs) Look Uh, at all the titties. Yeah. Anyway, the sex scenes of the first season, largely are strange and beautiful and notably not focused on just showing a woman's breasts, right? Yeah. Um, They're weird. Sex is kind of weird. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but sex is kind of weird. Um, Maybe not weird in the way that the show depicts sex as weird, but I appreciated that these scenes were less horny in the conventional sense and more horny in the extremely weird sense. Which made them feel more intimate. Yeah, like when you're watching Bill Quist pull oh man God. into her vagina and you're kind of like why is this hot <laughs> for me i was like should i be wa-? like this seems like a really intimate moment should i be watching this? yeah like i don't like especially with salim uh-huh i really was like i don't know if i should be watching like like not like oh my god i shouldn't watch this but like this seems like this seems like a private moment between yeah. the two of you <laughs> yeah totally. it was so it was nothing like i had really ever seen it's really playing, these sex scenes are really playing with the line between attraction and revulsion and intimacy and performance and like reality and unreality. I will say, and I'm kind of sad that I wasn't right when I first watched that, I thought he was making Salim the agenda. No joke. That's how I've always interpreted it in the book. Yeah, right. That's how I've always interpreted the book. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad I'm not alone because I was like, because it made, especially in the show, it was like, oh shit, that's cool. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I guess That's not. how I always interpreted it in the book. I have no idea if that's how it's meant to be read but that is how i've always read it since i first read okay good i'm glad i'm not the only one because it makes sense to me yeah but then the show did not follow through on that i was like well maybe i'm just really not understanding it that's how i always read it i don't know if that's how it's intended but that is it's because it's the more interesting way so it's it's intended (laughs) um 
There is no better example of this than the sex scene between Salim and the djinn, which depicts sex between two men in a very literal and very abstracted sense. This is deeply magical sex that they're having, right? In part because one of them is a fantastical being and in part because Salim desperately needs connection with another human being in a place as cruel as America. The scene is beautiful, it's strange, and it's moving, and it contains visible penises. And then all of that just disappears. We will get to the showrunner stuff in a moment. But after Fuller and Green left the show after season one, sex still happens, but it is no longer particularly interesting. We see a lot of breasts, but no penises, with one notable exception that we will return to in a moment. Everybody is having sex, but they're having it between people of different genders. Again, one exception. Uh, Baron Samdi and Laura have sex. Brid- uh, Brid- Bridget? Bridget? Brid- Bridget? I can't remember. Bridget. <laughs> I should know how to say this, but I don't. Um, Bridget and Mad Sweeney. Shadow and what's her name? Um, they're all having sex. We see a lot of bare breasts. We see a lot of groping hands. But aside from the way they're filmed or some of the special effects, I don't feel like the sex scenes are doing anything particularly interesting. In fact, if I wanted to be a real bitch about it, <laughs> I would say that anything interesting that happens in the in the last two seasons with regard to sex is simply aping the visual style of the first season and not actually making any kind of statement. I would agree with that. I could, I could get behind that. Um, and the reason I bring this up is not because I demand to see penises in every show ever. Don't lie. <laughs> I don't. Don't lie. <laughs> but rather because the first season's inclusion of penises in sex scenes and outside of them was interesting. In a show about gods, I think it served to make men feel more human. Nudity is often vulnerable, right? Having men be naked and in positions that aren't of power is somewhat unusual on TV. And I think it added a richness to the show, even if it's not as explicit, pun intended, of a challenge as, say, the changes to Laura. To have a man naked on screen, not in a position of power is interesting, right? To see a penis, a sex organ that sits outside of the body and is immensely vulnerable to damage, that's interesting, right? When we're talking about gods and we're putting a man in a vulnerable position as part of this conversation, that's interesting to me. And then in seasons two and three, no more dicks, except in one exception, which we will discuss. But Salim and the Jinn also deserve more of a deep dive. In the book, Salim gets one chapter, which plays out largely the way it does in the episode where he first shows up. He's an immigrant to America. He's failing at selling tchotchkes. He gets in the car, they hook up, and the Jinn leaves him. The show makes Salim and the Jinn into tertiary characters, with the Jinn involved in Wednesday's plot, and Salim sort of following the Jinn around like a lost puppy. Um... On the one hand, love the inclusion of not just queer people, but specifically specifically a queer Muslim man. Mm-hmm. Um, Salim is a genuinely lovely character, and I really love him juxtaposed against Laura in particular. You know, like he is this very devout man, and Laura's like, fuck everything. <laughs> I, I love the two of them together. Um, My favorite buddy cop. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, Woof, there sure was a lot of time spent with no real direction for Salim or the Jinn. And the unceremonious dismissal of the Jinn's actor was something. Weird. Really weird. It felt weird. Um, I really, It was one of those things where I'm like, oh, well, the actor must have been doing something else, right? He had to be. I, God, we can only hope. He had to be doing something else. Um, I really like Salim and the episode where he and Laura sort of shed their past burdens at the queer hotel was really lovely. But Salim really felt like such an afterthought plot wise for the vast majority of the show. 
Um, inclusion is good, but when you have a character who's just sort of there with so little to do, it really does feel like inclusion for inclusion's sake, rather than because you really believe in the character. I, to be clear, I think this is largely an issue with seasons two and three. Um, so justice for Salim. Yeah. Um, in less positive news, I am utterly baffled by the Derek storyline in Lakeside in season three. It felt weird. Like, I would not expect that. I did not expect Yeah. In the book, when Shadow arrives in Lakeside, Hinselman sort of gives him this little impromptu tour of the town and an introduction to the people who live there, which includes a gay couple. Hinselman makes a point of saying they actually are a couple. And when she said, couple, Mr. Ainsel, heavens, we have all kinds here, more than one kind of tree in the forest. Nobody here gives it a second thought. Meaning that the vision of perfect America represented by Lakeside is inclusive of queer people even before same-gender marriage was legalized. Because, again, this was written in the late 90s. Um, it is possible. I want to acknowledge some possibilities here. It is possible that Hinselman would lie about this, but we are not given any evidence that Hinselman doesn't lie other than that we don't see this couple because they are down in Florida or something. Um, from a writing perspective, Gaiman is making it clear that Lakeside is not just the perception of a rural town, a perception which typically includes the idea of conservative, of young, young towns, of small towns as both conservative and queer phobic, um, but rather about the possibility of a rural town. What could a rural town look like? A true, a true utopia. Yeah. Like we're not saying, I think what like I was saying is like, this is not like, oh, it looks it looks good from the outside, but when you get in, I think it was like, no, really. Yeah, this is <laughs> Lakeside is like this because of the horrible sacrifice going on. Yeah. But Lakeside is like this. Yeah. This is that is what that is how I've always read Lakeside. It is like this. Um it's a fantasy, right? But this fantasy of the ideal American town constructed in the book is an inclusive one, right? It is explicitly stated to me. Sure, Hinselman can be lying, could be lying, but I don't see any evidence that Hinselman is lying. So the incisive part of the of the lakeside section of the story, to me, is the part that feels empowered by inspired by Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Momelis. I don't want to spoil the story for you if you haven't read it, but it's very good. It's also quite short. You can read it very quickly. Um, and But it deals very, with something similar in that it's about something that appears to be utopian aside from a single atrocity, right? The big difference in American Gods is that the people of Lakeside don't know about the atrocity the way that the people of Omelas do, though the evidence is there if they choose to look for it, right? Anybody could have done what Shadow does and figure, like, he has help from a literal god, right? Yeah. The version of Ganesha that says, look in the trunk. Um, so he has that. But, like, the town records are there. Somebody could connect the dots, right? Like, there is an element there of the town choosing not yeah. to look too hard, not to look a gift horse in the mouth, per yeah. se. Um, that reads to me as an indictment of the attitude that because things are good for us, we have no reason to investigate why they are good. We carry on leading our blessed lives because our good fortune is made on the sacrifices of others and our happiness would be tainted if we knew. Right. Yeah. That's how I've always read the lakeside section. So I at least read Hinselman's statement that anybody would be accepted in Lakeside as genuine. That made sense to me. But in the show, we have Derek, a teenager who, it turns out, has been stealing women's underwear. This plot is not in the book whatsoever. Um, when confronted by Shadow and Chad, the town police officer, and brief aside here, I'm appalled that Shadow would yeah. narc on a teen. Like, obviously, there is potential for what Derek is doing to be a sex crime. But Shadow can fucking handle himself. I yeah. do not believe that Shadow would bring a cop the first time he talks to I Derek. know it felt really weird and like he had to have known that could have gone bad right, right? 
He had to have known. Like, you can say a lot of things about Shadow. I don't think Shadow's a fucking narc. I agree. Totally agree. Um, Especially having to be with Laura. Right. Like, no. Laura would not. I'm sorry. There's a lot of things about Laura, but she would not be with a narc. No. Uh, Anyway, Derek tells Chad and Shadow that he steals underwear because he likes wearing women's clothes and he doesn't feel like he can just wander down to the general store and pick some up because he's afraid of judgment. Now, I want to be clear. A desire to wear underwear meant for a different gender is not necessarily an indication of queerness. There are all kinds of reasons somebody might do that. It is possible that Derek is straight <laughs> and cis and maybe has a fetish or something. I don't fucking or know. Or just likes it. Or he just likes it. Whatever. Wear whatever fucking underwear you want. It's free country. Um, that's what the real method of... The real... Me- <laughs> the real... Um, the real theme of American Gods is that you can wear any kind of underwear you want. That's true. Um prove me wrong that's his prerogative right but here's what doesn't make sense to me even setting aside the fact that the fucking internet exists right he could order underwear um if lakeside is the perfect accepting american town why does Derek feel that way what factors are contributing to his need to steal it could be that he's lying and he's just a pervert but we have no evidence for that right the show does not give us the evidence to say Derek is a pervert yeah um so either Lakeside is not the perfect down or cross-dressing slash transness slash gender fluidity are not considered part of the fabric of a perfect town within the Lakeside of the show. I actually don't think either of those things is true because the show in the next episode has a real celebration of queerness, yeah. which suggests to me that the that the idea of queerness is essential to the fabric of a perfect town, right? And if the premise of the perfect town isn't true... Like, if, if the idea is, well, Lakeside isn't actually perfect, the Lakeside storyline falls apart. Yeah. Right? I think it's a misunderstanding of what, of like, what's going on. I think that there's, it's really easy to look at Lakeside and be like, well, they're sacrificing kids, right? So it's not perfect. Uh huh. Um, and I think it's easy to be like, well, of course this would happen because you're making all these assumptions. But I think if, if you're going in and the idea is, I mean, you could, I think it's easy to go in and, and make the assumptions that they did, right? But it's, it, it doesn't, What's the point of the god? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it 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 doesn't I don't know. There's I have a lo- I have a lot of thoughts on it and I don't know how to articulate them, especially when you when you put this against the Peacock Hotel one. Right. It doesn't work for me. It I don't know. I don't I don't ha- I don't know the full like uh thought of this, but I think it's interesting to know that lakeside is supposed to be perfect and this god has to be there and has to sacrifice these children whereas a god comes to the peacock and is like hey yeah you guys are good you're blessed and then leaves yeah and i'm part of it has to do with like the source of the myth Mm -hmm. there right like uh because hinselman is a kobold which requires what's the kobold it's a germanic folklore okay creature ish um that you sacrifice to for mm. like protection. Um, I know significantly less about the God that visits the Peacock Hotel. Um, but yeah, but so like there's that, but <laughs> this requires so many leaps in logic that like, I can't say, Oh, well the show was trying to do this because it requires me to invent things that aren't there. I think, okay. I think that there's a lack of not lack of knowledge or understanding, but there's, an idea that I don't necessarily agree with that because these children were being sacrificed, this town really wasn't good. Yeah. That's what I think maybe it comes down to. Whereas because the children were being sacrificed, the town was good. 
Like there's yeah. two there's two different ways of looking at that, and I think it's and easy. that's why that's why the comparison to the ones who walk away from Omelas is like like that story is really challenging for a reason, and I I feel like this. I feel like Lakeside is enhanced by knowing the ones who walk away from Omelas. Mm. Um, it's it's a really good story. Now that we've got that very weird annoyance out of the way, <laughs> we'll move on to the next episode, uh, which is the one that ostensibly is about other things, but is primarily about Salim and Laura shutting the people who are holding them back and moving on with their lives. Laura by turning over Sweeney's coin to get Gungnir and Salim embracing his queerness at the Peacock Hotel. Uh, overall, I really like this episode in the part insofar as we're talking about the parts about Salim and Laura. Um, especially the centering of queer joy during the party at the hotel. Uh, there were multiple kinds of queerness depicted, people of different races, mostly sexual, but some not, thinking particularly of the, the scene of Tony on the swing. Uh, I really appreciated that. Uh, this sort of excess of it brought to mind Sense8, where you have people engaging yeah. in sex in this really joyful life and identity affirming way. Uh, this is a quote from American Gods, The Rapture of Burning by Mikey Heinrich who writes, all of these people are simply allowed to be who they are on screen without the expected overtone of look at these freaks that so often accompanies the subject matter. And then the scene climaxes, exclamation point, <laughs> with what might be the bravest thing I've ever seen on screen. Tony, fully naked from the front, on a swing of laurels directly lifted from the tarot card, the world, unashamedly displaying her non-surgically gender-confirmed self fully and completely. Honestly, I was moved to tears every single time I watched it in the joy of that moment. The world, for those unfamiliar, symbolizes completeness. Being a whole thing within oneself, that you are enough. You are whole. You are healed. You are going to be okay. I think this really gets at the heart of what's so wonderful about this scene. A lot of people want queerness to be palatable. Like, when we talk about, you know, acceptance and that kind of thing, there is a push to be palatable and easy to read by the mainstream or dominant culture, however you want to think about it. Um, but by its very definition, queerness stands in opposition to the mainstream, right? We shouldn't have to bend ourselves to fit the definition of what is acceptable because the de we are, by our very nature, we are living in opposition to that, right? Um, we are queer because we do not fit the expected norms of our society. Hiding away our queerness for the comfort of others is denying an essential part of ourselves. I do want to acknowledge that not all queerness is based on who you're having sex with. Uh, asexuality and aromantic people exist. Trans people exist, etc. Um, you do not have to be engaged in queer, se queer sex at every moment of every day or not be considered queer. But... When society demands that we hide our queer desire away, whether that's as chaste as holding hands or as explicit as fetish gear at Pride, and then we fall in line with that, we are denying an essential part of ourselves for the comfort of the mainstream, and I think that's bad. I agree. Um, what the scene does is it makes the expression of queerness colorful, tender, hedonistic, pleasurable, beautiful, affirming. There is no judgment in that space. It's the most free that they can be. And the choice to have Tony naked and with a visible penis is a really beautiful choice that showcases her joy and her security in her body. Something I do want to discuss really briefly is, though, that part with Tony swinging. Now, when we talk about this, I want to be clear that I am not saying that this is good or bad. I thought the scene was lovely, right? I have never seen something like that in any other show. And to be fair, I haven't watched every show Ever. in the universe. So maybe there are other examples. I just haven't watched them. But I have not seen such a beautiful depiction of a trans body in so much joy, right? So I've not seen that. And I am not saying that it should not have been shown. 
but I found it very interesting. Again, the word interesting, not good or bad. I found it very interesting that at least as far as I noticed, the only penis we see in this season, despite all of the queer sex going on, belongs to a trans woman. It is not like there is a real glut of trans women's penises on TV. And the way it was being shown in American Gods was joyful and empowering and lovely. The thing that gets me is that the first season had so many visible penises and the last two seasons, to my recollection, had one and that one penis belonged to a trans woman. Again, not that I think showing penises is some barometer of a show's progressiveness, but it did give me pause that the only penis we saw belonged to a trans woman, given that there is so much fetishization of trans women bodies, particularly by straight cis men. Yeah. I'm going to link a them article in the show notes that talks a bit about this and specifically about the fetishization of trans women who either elect not to or haven't yet had gender affirming surgery. As for like the fetishization of it, I think there's there's some really interesting um, uh, people made graphics of like the top things searched yeah. in each state and Pornhub and a lot of them were trans women. Yeah. In like places you may not think that sure. would happen. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, again, I don't think this show should be changed. I don't think this scene should have been changed or should not have shown her penis simply because, well, they didn't show any other kinds of penises. I don't think, I don't think the show should have done away with that. I am ju- like, I'm just sitting here like, why was that penis shown and other penises were not? You know, that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at. Why was that the acceptable penis? Not to say we shouldn't show it. Just why was her penis acceptable and other penises were not? Do you have anything else to say about gender and queerness? No, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I one of the things this has nothing to do with gender or queerness. Maybe it does, and I'm just not seeing it. But I really liked when they went there and they're like, is this real? Because it could plausibly be real. That they were like fairies and stuff. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I thought, and then she touches the wings, and she's like, "No, it's not real." But I thought that was really funny. Yeah, that was cute. Let's talk about adaptation. Let's. This outline is so long, so we're gonna do the highlight reel. But of, we're almost there. Yeah, we're gonna do the highlight reel of the ups and downs of the production of this show. Get I'm ready for put, a roller coaster. I'm gonna put links in the show notes so you could do your own reading because I simply could not fit all of the drama into this outline. One season one had Brian Fuller and Michael Green as showrunners. They were fi- they were fired after season one. It was initially reported that they left the show due to creative differences. Later, it was said they were fired um, due to creative differences going severe. Sorry, going severely over budget. That's why the first season was so short and creative differences between them and Neil Gaiman in particular. Season two, Jesse Alexander, who worked on Hannibal with my with. Um, Brian Fuller. Jesse Alexander was poised to take over Fuller and Green's role, but he was also fired for reasons I do not know. Uh, I believe during this time period, Neil Gaiman was also less present for the production of season two because he was working on Good Omens. Which is so frustrating. Yeah. Where, as we discussed in our episode on Good Omens, he had a more direct hand in the shape of the show. This left, I am not kidding, the entirety of season two without a showrunner, which, in my opinion, fucking shows. I, I it was so it, aimless. I added a note somewhere and I took it out and it was like too many so too many characters, not enough showrunners. And yeah. that's how I feel. God, I just like I saw someone I was reading a bit about like what people said about the show on Reddit again, because I love Reddit as a source of like what Real, fandoms yeah. are saying. Um and somebody identified like the first season of the show is roughly 
one to 33% of the book. Like it goes from 1% of the book to 33% of the book. And season two is from 33% to 34% of the book. <laughs> the wow. entire season. Yeah, you're right though. The entire season is just putting Shadow on a bus. <laughs> it was <laughs> weird. Just, we got to get him on that bus. And we're going to take a whole season to do it. Um, season three, we have Charles Sheik. Chick, I'm not sure. Egley, I'm not actually sure how to say his last name. Anyway, the showrunner for season three. He was hired. Orlando Jones, who played Mr. Nancy and who had been serving as a writer and creative advisor on the show in season two, tweeted that he had been dismissed from the show because, quote, Egley is very smart and he <laughs> thinks that Mr. Nancy's angry get shit done is the wrong message for Black America, unquote. The I can just see this conversation happening. Yeah. So the show American Gods was under, I believe, the production company called Fremantle. So after Orlando Jones tweeted this, Gabrielle Union, who was also dismissed from uh, a Fremantle show, America's Got Talent, after speaking up about racism on the show, voiced her support for Orlando Jones, essentially saying we need to talk. I also experienced the same thing, not from um, Charles Egley, but, but, from, the but from the production company. Um, the showrunner and Fremantle denied that Jones was dismissed because of racism, but rather that because the direction of the story did involve Mr. Nancy and they were getting back on track with the book. Now, if you've read the book and watched season three, you can clearly see what a hot load of bullshit that was. The show only minimally follows the book, and I don't see any reason why Jones couldn't have been a part of it, especially as a writer. Um, anyway, my point here is that the development of this show was a mess from top to bottom. Like, this yeah. is maybe one of the messiest stories, like, behind-the-scenes stories that I've heard as far as, like, wow, I've never seen it to translate so directly to the quality yeah. of the show. Yeah. Um the short version of my thoughts on the show are that the first season is excellent and the two other seasons can basically kick rocks. Um, it just feels so different. Yeah. It just feels like even down to like the color. I love how the first season looked. Yes. Like everything. Uh, that's part of the reason why I'm like Brian Fuller needs to do a Wictive adaptation because yeah. it would be perfect. Yeah. Um, it just the, for the, the opening for the show is the first season and then the opening for the show of season two and season three seems weird. Yeah, it's from a different like it's, it's literally, literally from a different show. Yeah, it just it doesn't it doesn't match. Um great acting doesn't save a show from being aimless. Uh if you give your great actors nothing to do, no way to grow or change or have any impact on things, it's a lot harder for something to be good, right? Like the the quality of the acting I think stayed consistent. It was it everybody was doing a good job with what they were given. Mm -hmm. They were just given nothing, you know? Um, the show was weird and visually interesting, but I felt like there was a lack of purpose in seasons two and three. Like they were always trying to capture the book or return to the book and never quite getting there. Um, and it ended up all feeling very emotionally flat for me. Like I, I couldn't get invested in what it was happening. It took me so long to get through the last two seasons. I was so invested in Laura and Mad Sweeney. Every time they were on screen, I was like, okay, it's time to pay attention. <laughs> but beyond that, I simply did not care about what was happening to the people on the show. And then Mad Sweeney died, and I was like, well, what the fuck's the point? Um, the first season, though, like we've talked about before, I think in the Good Omens episode, or maybe the Sandman one, what I'm personally, I personally, Melissa, am hoping for from an adaptation is not to see the events of a novel depicted exactly as they are described in the novel. 
I'm hoping to see the spirit of the thing adapted into a new art form, which for the most part is how the first season works for me. The show leans into visual spectacle and excess, which is extremely American, in my opinion. The show feels like Las Vegas, right? It is the approximation of what a... It's not approximation. It's an exaggeration of what a city might be, right? Um, The first scene of the show features, I think, a Viking being just absolutely riddled with arrows from Native Americans to a degree that is absolutely absurd. There is no reason why he needed to be stuck full of that many arrows. Yes, there Um, is. The letterboxing, like the shape, the aspect ratio changes, blood spatters onto the camera lens and outside of the letterboxing. Um, it is dedicated to being a visual spectacle, which it's Brian great. Fuller is perfect for. Yeah. He knows how to do a visual, right? Um, he brings in other elements of America that didn't make it into the book, such as Vulcan and American's obsessions with guns, the incredible number of shallow Jesuses at <sighs> Easter's house. It works um, so well. All of that kind of thing. Like that stuff isn't in the book, and he does a really good job of bringing it into the story in a way that makes sense. You didn't get the after talks on the on the shows, did you? No, I didn't watch those. They were interesting, but I did. I'm now realizing they only happened in the first season. Of course. <laughs> um. Even if it's not step-by-step following the book, I think it's good at painting a portrait of what we worship and what that says about our culture. Then the other two seasons happened, and I don't even know what to say about them. They were boring. Um, This is a a quote, another quote from that same article. Why adapting Neil Gaiman's American Gods for TV is a bad idea by Abraham Josephine Reisman. The dastardly lineup of evil new gods includes media, goddess of television, whose Faustian offer to Shadow is as follows. We can make you famous, Shadow. We can give you power over what people believe and say and wear and dream. You want to be the next Cary Grant? We can make that happen. Oh, so the media, quote unquote, uh, that perpetually ill-defined bugaboo for complainers everywhere has too much power in modern life? Wow, stop the presses. Even if you update the details, no doubt the star's version of the technical boy will be constantly Instagramming and texting. That kind of condescending technophobia will be creaky at best and stomach-turningly tone deaf at worst. On the one hand, yes, I agree. There is some technophobia in a very silly way with how the technical boy in the book in particular is constructed. Right? I'm not going to disagree with that. But... Maybe because I'm looking at this from the perspective of January 2023. Uh, As a person who deeply hates Twitter and what it does to my brain, as a person who has seen rampant misinformation be swallowed up and repeated uncritically by people on TikTok, as a person who unfortunately lives in a world where Facebook exists, where employers track employees via technology to keep their health insurance costs low, where AI developers strive to replace working artists, where AI-assisted VTubers go on Twitch and deny the Holocaust, where outdated software grounds flights in America, America, I think a little bit of techno techno skepticism is warranted. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't have great feelings about technology and its role in our culture as, like, a replacement for humanity. Right? I don't feel good about that. Yeah. Um, And while the media certainly isn't to blame for everything bad that happens here in America and elsewhere... Again, we live in a world with Fox News and MSNBC and Sinclair Broadcasting and the slippery slide to alt-right ideology that is watching one single fucking gaming video on YouTube. Like, that's not even an exaggeration. No. (laughs) Um, Again, skepticism is deserved. And and I'd like to point out that these 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 companies like YouTube know. Yeah, they know. They know. I can't remember what the podcast is, but there was one where they talked about a woman who used to work. So she was like a really, she might have even been the CEO for YouTube. And now she is like advocating for changing everything because how bad it is. Yeah. Like they know. It's, it's to keep you watching, right? That's all they care about. It's for capitalism. Um, 
there are boring ways to handle this idea of skepticism of technology, which to be fair, I'm not sure the show or novel really escape, right? I'm not mm-hmm. sure that they really get beyond a sort of surface level or shallow discussion of these things. And there are also skillful ways to do it. Critique of media and technology are not inherently flawed, but sometimes people critique them shallowly. I think that the show does an okay job. And I think that the part that really worked for me, and I can't remember if this is also in the book, is the part when media says, I think to Shadow, what do we sacrifice? And she says, your time and attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's true. It like, is true. That's just true. It's just true. Most people are not content to not be entertained at every point in the day. Now, that doesn't have to be a bad... Entertainment is not bad, of course. We are doing a podcast about pop culture. Like, we don't think entertainment is bad. But, like, if I want to get real conspiracy theory about it, right? <laughs> like, the fact that we ha- we are entertained at every given moment does not give us a lot of time to think and be critical beyond that. It doesn't mm-hmm. give us a lot of time to think about things like, hey, what if our society was not built on the idea that money is the greatest thing on Earth, right? Like... It doesn't give us a lot of time for that. It doesn't even give us a lot of time for human connection, right? So, sorry I put my conspiracy theory No, I think you're right, though. One of my, like, um, New Year's resolutions, I guess you could call it, is um, to journal because I, I, like, need to stop, right? Mm -hmm. I need to stop always being on my phone. I need to stop constantly feeling like I need to have something in front of me like literally something in front of me to entertain me like this is literally what you're saying is literally what I'm trying not to do this year yeah and like journaling is a good way for me to stop and and, like even part of it like I'm not like not even just that but like part of my goal in journaling is to stop writing so fast Uh because it hurts my fucking hand first of all and there's no reason to yeah and I think a lot of times this turns into like blaming individuals like oh just get off your phone yeah it's not that easy like this stuff is designed (laughs) to keep us hooked yeah right it is designed to be addictive and that's why i think again criticism of these these things is totally warranted yeah i understand it may feel technophobic Mm -hmm. and there's it's not that everything technological is bad and there's no good sides it's just that like yeah i think we should consider our relationship to it yeah um if capitalism wasn't involved, maybe we could say just get out of it. Right. Because, but because there is a constant need for money, because if people are not on there, they cannot look at the ads. People will not pay for the ads. The companies will not make money in order to create the, sh- the whatever it is, you know, just like why a fart book didn't work. Fart. Oh, God. I was like, what is a fart book? And then I was like, oh, right. Letter I walked it out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I bet you, I was like, Missy probably loves this episode. Jesus. Um, this is a quote from American Gods, wasn't as deep a book as you remember by Devin Maloney. Um, a particularly flat concy is the most ironic, is the most iconic new god, the irritatingly adolescent technical boy. With his power derived from our obsession with computers and the internet, a relatively new obsession when American Gods was first published, his entire existence seems to ignore the fact that technology, which in reality is defined simply as tools invented to improve a way of doing something, is as old as civilization itself. If you consider the existence of ships, weapons, and writing implements, technology is o- is the only reason many of the so-called old gods existed at all. Well, there's certainly plenty to condemn about the toxicity of modern American culture, uber capitalism, prison and military industrial complexes, uniquely poisonous strains of racism and misogyny. American Gods, though quippy and clever on a line by line basis, is a novel mostly guided by an old man yells at cloud philosophy that doubts American 
America, sorry, that doubts modern America cares about anything of value. To put it succinctly, for humankind, the good stuff is all behind us. I so vehemently disagree with this. <laughs> I do as well. I so, like, down to, like, the, the way that they, like, compare the internet to, to, to like, tools, yeah. when, like, completely ignoring what we literally just talked about, like, algorithms and things like that, is just, like, ignorant. Now, to be, I do want to be fair to the the authors of both of these articles. They were writing them before the show came out. Okay, so we, you know, we were in a different place in twenty sixteen. This is true. This is true. The world was different in two, in twenty sixteen. Um, so I don't want to be like, I mean, obviously, a lot of the problems that exist now also existed in twenty sixteen, but I also want to acknowledge that, like popular understanding of things like YouTube algorithms and the r- very real dangers of extremism on social media maybe were not as well understood. So Gamergate started around 2014 and for yes. me that is like the beginning of like that's the pipeline to Q for, for me. sure for and sure. all right. So 2016 is still in a way in which you could understand these things are happening, but it's not as like people are talking about it in documentaries you can watch on HBO. Yeah. I assume that any writer online was aware of Gamergate, but maybe that's just because of the circles that I'm in. But like for sure people got it in with Q. Right. I was always so confused with Q because like people kept calling it anonymous. And I was like, that's from like when we were young, that was a totally fucking different different. thing. (laughs) Totally fucking different. Totally different ideology. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Anyways. Um, I hate to pick on a single article. Um, so this was not a sentiment unique to this one. It was actually pretty popular. Uh, but the, this idea that, the that American gods is about how the bad new gods killed the old good gods. Um, it feels like it relies on a fundamental misunderstanding of the book to me. Like, yes, the book is critical of technology. It's critical of America, but the old gods are also terrible. Yeah. Right? Like they're who is like, oh man, the good old days when fucking Odin. Like, yeah. Who is like all oh, the good old days with all those terrible, they're all terrible. The only one that I don't think is terrible is the girl who looks at the sky. Yeah. <laughs> She's great. Um, Wednesday is not a hero, right? Loki is not a hero. Not even close. Even the nicest gods are not heroes. We are not meant to emulate them. We aren't even meant to worship them, I don't think. Hence what we discussed earlier about humanism, right? The gods are us. We're the gods. It's the same fucking thing because we made them. Um, we created them to be the way that they are. We are responsible for them and the weird shit that they do. I don't think at all that it's about the good stuff being behind us. I think it's about, in part, acknowledging that we have built the world we live in and whatever gods we blame for it, we created those gods. I mean, we still, he's still the god of war. Right. He's still the god of war. War was still, so like, are you, like, you can be upset with how war is happening now, but that didn't, doesn't negate the fact that it was happening before. Right. Um, if so, like, we'll use technology, you know, technical boy technology as an example. If technology is a problem, let's use robot police dogs as an example, right? The, the many videos of the robots dancing and stuff. And, and some people warned, like, you know, they're going to use these as police, right? And then lo and behold, in fact, the dancing robot dogs are now being used for police. Um, if robot police dogs exist, we can say, Oh no, robot, robot police dogs exist, right? We built them. We did that. Humanity built the dogs. 
if the technical boy existed, we could say, oh, no, it's because the technical boy made them as a way to side sidestep the fact that we built the technical boy, right? We mm. built him. He built the dogs. But what it comes down to is the fact that we fucking built him, right? Whatever blame we might try to shift to a god, we have to understand we built the god, you know? We're responsible for it. Yeah. That's not to say that American Gods is perfect or that Neil Gaiman is right about everything. He's not. Uh, but to say that this book is built on the old man yells at cloud philosophy feels like such a misreading to me. Um, Shadow, a deeply kind, if boring man, is is not like the rest of the gods, right? In part because he was raised outside of the culture of gods. He was raised by a single mother traveling through world embassies. He has a very different perspective. And despite Wednesday's attempt to shape him, it fails because I think of human influence. That's humanism. Baby. Shadow is not Shadow's a god, but he's not like the he's not like other gods. He's not like other, he's a cool god. He's a cool god because specifically because he was not raised as a god. His godhood is also his humanity, right? Which is like what Jude's trying to do with Oak. <laughs> yeah. And we'll find out when I read Stolen Air if it works. Yeah. Um that's humanism. It could also be optimism, right? But I think more than anything, it's humanism. The idea that what we are is not just a product of what we literally are as in like in the case of shadow literally a god he's also a human and because he was raised as a human he behaves as a human not as a god i think that that's why i get so frustrated with this idea that like oh well it's about how uh the old gods are good and the new ones are bad no they all suck um, this is a quote from the same article, American Gods Wasn't As Deep of a Book As You Remember by Devin Maloney. While early signs point to technical boy remaining as characteristic as ever, with smartphones and social media bolstering the book's technophobia, according to Gaiman, our gadgets are ruining us and couldn't possibly be bringing us closer together, sorry, sorry closer to each other or giving access, access to information that can make us wiser and more decent. That caricature may be able to indict something more insidious. Instead of the fat, pimply, basement-dwelling loser portrayed in the book, technical boy is now a slick... Spoiled Silicon Valley one percenter brat with the personality of a Nazi Twitter troll, not to mention the effectiveness. His henchmen become literal lynch mobsters in the premiere, legitimizing online harassment as having real world consequences. This idea drives me nuts <laughs> because gods are not the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Gods are gods of the thing, which sounds super noncommittal, but bear with me. So technical boy is not a cell phone, right? He's the thing behind the cell phone. If you want to think of it in platonic like, terms, he's the thing that casts the shadow on the cave wall, right? Like in Wizard of Oz. Like in Wizard of Oz? He's the guy behind... The man behind the curtain. Yeah. Um, it's not that cell phones are evil. It's that technology has taken the place of worship, right? Of course, cell phones could bring us per closer together. That's not what the technical boy represents, though, right? Like, of course they can. But that's not what he's doing. That's not what he represents. It's the worship of the technology itself, the fetishization of the newest iPhone model or computer upgrade or Instagram likes or whatever over whatever else you might be experiencing. You can kind of draw a comparison, I think, to um, something we talked about in our Twilight episodes, the idea of death worship. Mm -hmm. It's not so much that the idea of an afterlife itself is a problem so much as it is the obsession with achieving the afterlife at the expense of the world around you. That's how I feel about the technical boy and like cell phones as well. Mm -hmm. It's not so much that like you can't 
enjoy a cell phone so much as it is I can look at beautiful things on Instagram and never once look around me. Yeah. And that seems... Touch grass. Yeah. And <laughs> I can look at a picture of grass and not touch it. Um, it's, it's not like... That itself is not the issue. It's the fact that we spend so much time engaged with that as opposed to the real world around us. If you want like a maybe slightly meaner but slightly uh, slightly more real example, it's using the correct hashtag on Twitter when you could be spending time working at your local mutual aid group, you know? That's harsh. Like, it's that kind of thing. That's harsh. Sorry. Um... It's not that it has no value. It's just that they're not the same, right? Like, and the prioritization over one of one over the other, I think actually is a problem. <laughs> so you can call me an old man yelling at a cloud if you want. As at I, least you're looking at the cloud. As I see, <laughs> old man yells at photo of cloud. <laughs> Where's that comic? <laughs> um. Yeah, it is. It's disingenuous, in my opinion, to act as if this is about cell phones as opposed to the role that technology plays in our lives. Yeah, and and also it'd be super hypocritical, which is not to say he wouldn't do it. It's just it would be super hypocritical of Neil Gaiman, particularly, to be super down on social media or the internet because, like, I've never seen a more an author who is more like in touch with his community, especially on Tumblr. Like there he is truly, no- yeah, he truly has figured out a way in which to communicate with them. Yeah. That doesn't always feel like the parasocial relationship isn't like, oh God. <laughs> it doesn't always sometimes I'm like, you need to step away. Yeah, of course. But he still it doesn't feel like, oh, you're just an old man using social media. Yeah. There are some authors who definitely are old men using social media. And there are some authors who are l- technically old men using social media, but they feel like digital natives. And that's how Neil yeah. Gaiman is because he was an early adopter of the blog. Like he literally. That makes sense. He was w- like one of the first author bloggers. That's so interesting. And that's why he is the way he is. Um but there is a question in all this that I think is worth asking, right? I love to ask questions. You do? Um, <laughs> well, do. I did not know this about you. The question that I think is worth asking here is, was an adaptation of American Gods necessary if we can say that an adaptation of anything is necessary? Because, of course, that's a debatable point itself. Well, not if it's like this one. I agree. So, like, I <laughs> thought about this and I was like, if it's updated, yeah, I think it can be useful. Mm-hmm. But they took the person to do that away. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think that the the updates that could have the opportunities and the updates that could have been done, not just in like technology and all that stuff, but in representation, they mm-hmm. almost like they, they you could tell they wanted to get there. But like we were talking about like the leaving out a lot of the native native history and things mm-hmm. like that was an opportunity missed in which we could have updated and they, it. They made Sam, who is an important fucking character. Sam in the book literally states the fucking thesis. <laughs> Like, she gives a whole little monologue where she basically tells Shadow the theme of the book, <laughs> and they cut it from the show. They Because it's not the theme of the show. It's not the theme of the show, and apparently they couldn't think of anything else for the non-binary Native American actor to do, so they just show up for one episode. It could have been so... There could have been so much to do with that, too, especially since, like, there's so much... I guess this was made... Uh, 
few years ago, but like the conversations being had about non-binary people and other yeah. and other cultures who are do not have just a male and female. There's so much that could have been happening. Yeah, and like that comes up in their first appearance. Like they they talk about that, but at the same time, but, like why do they get like effectively written yeah. out of the show? When they have a really key appearance in the lakeside section, yeah. that part really unifies like these just seem feeling like seemingly disparate elements of the book into one unified whole. And it also is an early it's an early piece of evidence for how not early, I guess, but it is a really clear piece of evidence for how orchestrated the the whole novel is in terms of um, Wednesday. Yeah. Right. Like everything is interconnected here. This is um, a really good example of a puzzle box in which you can get behind. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, I so like yeah, not uh, certainly not. We don't need an adaptation if it's like this one. I don't know that I have ever seen a drop off in quality as extreme as the drop off from season one to season two, where the show lost its teeth and largely, largely, largely just meandered from place to yeah. place without saying much of anything. If if the adaptation were as we're all as good as a Nancy's introductory speech. So good. Maybe then we would need an adaptation of it, right? Because that, that speech was maybe in the book, but not to that degree. Certainly not de- delivered with Orlando Jones's incredible performance. I don't know if you noticed, but like he hops from accent to accent. No, I did not speech, notice. And, yeah, so he's taking on different wow. accents from different parts of Africa because the concept of mm. Africa yeah. did not exist to the people that lived there in the same way that it exists to us today. He was representative of the multiple cultures yeah. of multiple countries in Africa, not just one single group. Interesting. So yeah, he hops was, from accent to accent. That was some one of the like strongest sections of yeah. the show. Um oh. So yeah, maybe if it were all as good as that, it would it would need it. But I mean, despite the fact that I think this book is extremely good, setting aside the fact that it's not at all my favorite of Gaiman's works, I think it's exquisitely plotted and executed. Like, I think it's a technically excellent book. Um, I really don't know that we do need an adaptation of it. There are better works, I think, to critique America. Uh, I don't know that there is a perfect one out there that won't have any flaws. I'm thinking of something like Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. which was very good at a lot of things, but also extremely transphobic and anti-indigenous in its mm-hmm. handling of one of the season's uh, villains. The creator of the show and that episode did apologize but the damage was done yeah and you have to ask how it got all the way to the air without anybody saying hey like this is super transphobic and anti-indigenous having working now for like a slightly bigger company that i've ever worked for like the amount of people we have to get like approval for for literally one facebook social media post is is huge Mm -hmm. how do you get there yeah like how do you get there so like i said i don't know that there is a perfect critique of America out there that won't have any flaws. But I do think we don't need to keep telling the same story by a white British man in Mm -hmm. every medium, you know? Um, (laughs) A lot of times, I think when I say things like this, I worry that people are going to say like, and it's Neil Gaiman's fault and he shouldn't, like, or we should never adapt Neil Gaiman again. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is We should never adapt it with him and so involved. (laughs) That is what I'm saying. I think that we should, we should be aware of whose works get adapted and whose do's not. Whose do's not. Whose do's not. Whose do's not. Because not only does this have a novel, 
right? This started as a novel. Then there's the 10th, an- 10th anniversary, like author's oh, preferred text version. There's the show. There's the graphic novel. Like there's the two additional short stories. Like th- presumably someday there will be a second book. I did the 10th anniversary one. That's uh, yeah, I did yeah. as well. Um, I especially wanted that because it has the Jesus scene in it. Mm. Um, so again, it's not like, oh, we shouldn't adapt this because too many Neil Gaiman works have been adapted. I don't give a fuck about that. What I care about is whose version of America gets elevated, right? Whose story gets to be told over and over again. Um, I'm glad this show was great when it was good. I think the book is excellent. But there are stories we told about America and what it worships that go beyond what Gaiman captured in American Gods. That doesn't mean it shouldn't have been made. And I think some critical thought about why it was made is warranted. It's just that, like, I mean... We did not make the active choice to do three Neil Gaiman things within six months or whatever. He's just that pervasive, right? Um, And he's good. Yeah. Like, no fault to Gaiman for writing good books that people like. I think it's just worthwhile to think about who gets to have the spotlight, who gets to tell the story of America. Because while, yes, his perspective of America as an immigrant from the UK is interesting, I would also be interested to see the you know, an American gods written by an immigrant from Mexico. It's very, it could have been very easy to just choose the showrunners very, very, like, specifically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It would have been so easy. Yeah. Those, those showrunners exist. The input of, the like, you can see, like, the parts where people with different perspectives made an impact. The um, representations of queerness, right? That yeah. made an impact. And then they pushed him out. And then they pushed him out. <laughs> the impact of Orlando Jones's writing. And then they pushed him out. And then they pushed him out. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the issue for me. Yeah. It, so, the, again, the issue is not that the show exists. The issue is not that Neil Gaiman wrote a book. It's that, like, we keep... So many times we we let the same kind of person tell the story and that narrows the scope like what we were talking about with regard to like how little of a role native american play people play yeah. in this story what is the story of american immigration told by native americans well it's probably not very flattering and maybe that's why it doesn't get a tv show you know <laughs> but that like i i'm laughing not because i'm like well of course it wouldn't get a tv show but that's an indictment of our culture yeah. right the fact that we continue to celebrate the same handful of like white men creators and we don't leave space for anybody else. It very much reminds me of like the fights being had in schools of like taking out history that is critical of America and like the um, unfortunate, the unfortunate reality that people are pushing this idea in um, schools that there's no wrong way. Right. Um, and when you when you fucking talk about Nazis, mm-hmm. it still seems like it seems like this of like, well, we don't want to cr- like show anything that's critical. Yeah. Like who wants to watch like that? show? Run- when I say people, I mean, like co- companies, like production companies and things right. like that. Hence why I think a lot of the reason there are less penises is probably because of production company thing. Yeah. Who wants to see that? Yeah. Whereas I, I firmly believe that Brian Fuller was willing to die on the hill of no, this needs a penis. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, just to reiterate, my point is not that the show should not have been made or that Neil Gaiman should never have any of his works adapted again, nor even that Neil Gaiman is a bad person. I don't know him. My point is that in the landscape of telling stories about our culture, we shouldn't continue to lean on the single perspective of white men, even British immigrants. You know, like we should have 
a variety of stories. And maybe we're approaching that, but which story gets the prestige, the prestige television treatment and which is a novel at the bookstore that nobody's read? We are getting more of that, but we are also getting extreme pushback on right. it yeah. from different places, uh, even from liberal places. Like, yeah. we're getting extreme. So, like, it's it's more important now than ever to read those stories to prove yeah. that they, they are valuable because the pushback these things are getting is just so extreme. Yeah. Any other thoughts on American Gods? No, I just want Brian Fuller to adapt to Wicked and Divine. Um, anything else about American Gods? No, it was good. It was probably my least favorite thing of gaming that we've done. Not that it was bad. Mm. My favorite probably being Sandman and yeah. then Good Omens. Uh, I probably like Good Omens more if it wasn't for the adaptation. Um, <laughs> for the haters. Well, it's just, it's not that it's bad. It was just boring. Yeah. Right? And and we saw in season one of American Gods how good it can be when adaptation is done well. Yeah. So it's like it's like oh we had it and we you could have had we could have had it we could have had it and then the reason you got rid of it is left the show you yeah. got rid of it because Neil Gaiman and then Neil Gaiman was like peace I'm gonna do a different show are you kidding me just yeah. I mean obviously we don't know all the details of it but it just it just feels like a crime yeah I feel like I hate crimes committed. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode. You can find us Ended online. on hate crime. You can find us online at fakygirlscast.com, which has all of our previous episodes. Obviously, uh, if you liked this one, consider the Sandman and Good Omens episode. Maybe also the uh, His Dark Materials one, because I think we talk quite a bit about adaptation yeah. in there. Um, thank you to Emily June for working on our, em- our Emily transcripts. <laughs> They are Emily transcripts, that's to be true, fair. That's true. Our episode transcripts. Um, if you like this podcast, consider leaving us a review on your podcast service of choice, whatever it is. If it lets you leave a review. Do it. Do it. Think about but it. But only if it's nice. But only if it's nice. Because we're soft. Because I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm a little tender baby. <laughs> uh, next time, we're going to talk about Mean Girls. I'm pumped. I'm pumped, too. I think there, it's in, there's not as many academic essays That's about Mean Girls as you would think. That's fucking wild. But the take on YouTube has done like 12,000 videos about various Interesting. Um, after Mean Girls, we're going to talk about Letterkenny. So that's what's coming up for us. And that's it. All right. Catch on the flip side.